episode of Dopey is brought to you by Oro Recovery. Oro was founded by our friend Bob Forrest in sunny Southern California with his friends Evan, Jared, and Bob with a really, really noble mission to help addicts and alcoholics by means of compassion and connection and not control. Their team has decades of experience in treating co-occurring mental health disorders, including severe mental illness. The amenities, don't even get me started about the amenities. Sound bath meditation, yoga, surfing, equine therapy, and of course, the potentially spiritually transformative sweat lodge. They are incredibly high rated. They have an amazing uh, series of reviews. So if you want to Yelp, Oro, you're going to like what you see. They're proud of the work they do, and the people that we know that have been there can't say enough good stuff about Oro. So check them out at ororecovery.com, and if you're fucked and you're willing to go to sunny Southern California to get some help, go get help at Oro. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our very good friends at Sober Buddy. Sober Buddy is an app to help you achieve sobriety. It is also a social media kind of platform that helps you maintain your sobriety, and it helps you help other people to be sober. But more than any of that, Sober Buddy is a community of sober and sober curious people who are out there to help each other. Every week, the team at Sober Buddy, of which I am a part runs Zooms with the Sober Buddy community and we help each other and we laugh together and we are productive and supportive and hold each other accountable. 
So check out Sober Buddy. It is available at the App Store and the Google Play Store, or it's available at YourSoberBuddy.com. There is a 30-day free trial. Sign up, kick the tires around, check it out, and come to our the Wednesday meeting I host at 9 in the morning might be the best meeting, uh, if you ask me. So come to Sober Buddy, check it out, and get your sobriety on track. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by the good people at Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech portable breathalyzer system that uses facial recognition technology to verify identity. Are you someone with an alcohol problem that needs to show proof of your sobriety? If that is you, then you should get Soberlink. Soberlink, it's a device. It's like a breathalyzer. You breathe into it, and it reports on the alcohol content in your system, which makes it really, really, really helpful in dealing with your family or your employer. Check them out at www.soberlink.com dopey, and you get 50 bucks off the device www.soberlink.com slash dopey. Get 50% off the device. Check it out. If you're looking for a free, yes, I said a free app that is very, very invested in addicts and alcoholics in recovery, having a good time, go to www.thephoenix.org. They just have the most amazing philosophy for addiction and recovery, which is if you're a drug addict or an alcoholic or someone with a problem with drugs or alcohol and you're struggling in your sobriety or your attempt at recovery, maybe you're not having enough fun. And the Phoenix wants to help you have more fun. They have CrossFit classes. They have a pickleball league. They have amazing art venues and music festivals. They sponsored our DopeyCon. We're working on another storytelling event. Go to www.thephoenix.org slash dopeypodcast. All they want from you is 48 hours of recovery or sobriety or whatever. It's fun. It's free. It's thephoenix.org slash dopeypodcast. Welcome to Dopey. This fucking chair. You hear this? I got this chair, I don't know, years ago for Christmas or my birthday, and I built it myself, and it, it just doesn't stop creaking, and it makes me crazy. Anyway, hello and welcome to Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit, and my name is Dave. And welcome to another edition of Dopey. I think it might be our 440th episode. Is that possible? No, it's our 439th episode of Dopey. So we're almost at 440. Does anyone out there know how to fix a creaky desk chair? This is the new, the new issue. It's making me nuts. Every time I record ads, I hear the creak. I have to re-record it. It's making me fucking crazy. So if anyone out there has any answers, please send a voicemail or an email to dopeypodcast at gmail.com. I know. I should put oil on it. WD, WD-40. 
that should take care of it. So any email besides WD40, that would be great. I want to read a note, okay? Here we go. Uh, hey, Dave, just wanted to say that I haven't listened in a while. Just being busy and only finding time to listen to podcasts while working on the house. And then it's usually got to be something my wife and I, and this is from a long time dope, Igor, who's been listening for a long time. And Igor was even dancing in the classic DopeyCon 2 Good So Bad video and singing a little bit. And Ray Brown was very attracted to Igor, I recall. But anyway, let me get back to this. Hey, Dave, just wanted to say that I haven't listened in a while, just being busy and only finding time to listen to podcasts while working on the house. And then it's usually got to be something my wife and I both want to listen to. But I listened to the Jeff Leach episode earlier this week, and it was so, so good. And as happens, every time I take a break and come back, it left me with a renewed commitment to recovery. So again, thanks for all you do. You and Chris kept me company while I was shooting speedballs alone in Chicago's most disgusting apartment. You kept me company while I was just a few months clean and drilling metal alone in Kiev for nine hours a day. And as recently, May, married guy coming up on four years. All right, Igor, hold on. Let me give you a little. Yeah. Or I'll give you the old school uh, vape knock. I just keep a vape. Well, I don't hit the vape. I just keep it lying around just in case we have to do vape knocks. And it's so important uh, to me. Okay, married guy coming up on four years and trying to start a family. It's so important to me to be able to pull out my phone and hear your same iconic, that's nice, thank you, voice, still talking to more and more people about all this shit and reflecting on where you started and where you are now and reflecting on the same for me is invaluable to me. Oh, and I think you've gotten much better at not interrupting. Thank you, Igor. You even got Jeff back on track with the New York mushroom story. Hope all is well with you and the family. Thank you, Igor. Um, yeah, I thought Jeff was great. There, there's some mixed Jeff comments later on the show. My dad is on this episode. My dad makes his triumphant return this week. And we have a different sort of guest this week. We have an author named Max Marshall, and he wrote a book called Among the Bros. And it's like kind of a true crime dopey story about a Xanax ring in Charleston, South Carolina, and a death and a ton of Xanax. And it's, it's a different kind of thing. So we have Max talking about Among the Bros, and we have my dad. But I want to read another note, another note from a very, very uh, important dope, and it's um, Mr. McPopham, and this is a sensitive, you know, potentially triggering, it's not a story, just a triggering note. And he says, hey, mate, can you do me a small favor if you don't mind, uh, but can you send John Joseph a quick message and thank him for talking so honestly about child abuse in his episode last week? I was abused as a kid. When I saw you put the post on Dopey Podcast page asking what hit you hardest about the John Joseph episode, Ben Croxton said something about John's brother dying, and I chimed in on that. But the truth is the stuff he said about child rape and child abuse fucking leveled me. I didn't have the balls to post this. 
but I was working on a piece of furniture in my workshop while I listened to that episode, and I was just fucking toppled. I haven't cried like that in many years, but it was a good thing, a catharsis. It's important stuff to talk about, so thank you for addressing the topic so well on Dopey, and thank you to John Joseph for talking so honestly and eloquently about it. If you want to read this on the show, then go for it, because abuse and addiction go hand in hand a lot of the time, and it needs to be talked about. Anyway, I'll catch you at the Patreon Zoom meeting. Much love, mate. And that's Mick. And I think it is very important. And Mick, I think it's uh, very brave and, I don't know, helpful for you to say that out loud. I think John Joseph saying it out loud was important. And I think, you know, it's an old cliche. We're only as sick as our secrets. And the more we connect with each other about the worst shit, the less the worst shit has to go over and over and over inside of our minds and our souls. So thank you, Mick. And I sent it to John Joseph, and he was very excited to get the message. And then we got a ton of notes about spanging, um, which I didn't know what it was, which was from the Chris Paulson episode. And this is Katie B wrote me what spanging was. A million fucking hippies wrote me about this. This one, this note is from Stephen Lewis, who says, did anyone clear up what spanging meant? Listening to the latest episode and heard the term. It's pronounced spanging, and it's a shortening of the term spare changing, just begging for change, sometimes with a sign. It's a common Grateful Dead and fish term. And like she said, you usually, was it a she who said it? I thought it was Chris Paulson who said it. Usually you get a cute chick or a senior citizen hippie to fly a spare change sign if you're hard up and out of cash. And that's from on Fish Tour. And that's from Stephen Lewis. And I think I got like five messages from hippies who needed to tell me what spanging was. I wish I was a hippie on tour spanging. Seems like a very fun time. And if you're a hippie or an ex-hippie in Dopey Nation who has a fun spanging story, send it into dopeypodcast at gmail. Dot com, And I'm going to read one more note, and this one is from a guy or woman. I don't know who it's from, but their name is Bingo, and I got the note on Instagram, and they say, Hey, Dave, got into the show in September when—oh, got into the show, meaning Dopey, when I was sick off Kratom withdrawal following some really insane health scares. Went looking for interviews with Smelly from NoFX and came across yours. About a week later, my older brother was hospitalized with liver failure and in a comatose state. Came back to the pod to have something external to focus on, and I've listened most days since. Tomorrow I'm going into treatment, detox first, then 75 to 90 days residential. Kratom is the most recent substance I've gotten into trouble with, but it's been a lifetime of drug abuse since I was 15. I'll turn 30 when I'm in treatment. I'm terrified of the withdrawals, but I know once the next few months go by, I'll be in a much better place. Thanks for what you've done with Dopey. It's been keeping me company since all this got really bad. Can't wait to catch up on the show when I'm out. Thank you, Bingo. Remember, like, fucking, it's a cliche, but one day at a time, you know, we want to fast forward for months, but just get through today and eventually it'll be better. All right. I got a crazy voicemail I want to play, but before I play it, I want to say that one of the sponsors that made DopeyCon IV so magical was also 
the birthplace of Dopey. It was, of course, Mountainside Recovery, located in Canaan, Connecticut, a beautiful place to get sober. And just such an important place to me because it was where I met Chris. Mountainside has a full continuum of care, which includes detox, residential, long-term residential, outpatient, and recovering coaching programs. The guy who runs their coaching programs is Dopey alum Bill Blaber, who had crazy Dopey stories. Mountainside also has an amazing family program, and they have lots of fun, lots of support groups, and an amazing community, an amazing alumni community, and an amazing time while you're there. There would be no Dopey without Mountainside, so if you're fucked up and you're willing to go to Connecticut to get well, go to mountainside.com, tell them you heard the ad on Dopey. I'm not sure when I got this voicemail. I don't know why I didn't play it when I got it, but it's this crazy voicemail from John Brown. So here we go, John Brown's crazy submarine story. Hey, Dave and Dopey Nation. This is John from Pittsburgh. Uh, so I was just going to tell a quick story about my time building submarines. Uh, so I was working in Connecticut uh, at a submarine base, uh, building nuclear submarines. I was in the Union, so really good paying job. Uh, family connections got me in. Uh, and so I go up there because I had left college because I had no clue what I was doing there. So I left my senior year. And I get a job up here, and, you know, I quickly, you know, meet up with younger guys my age, and we're just working all day, and, uh, you know, as soon as we get out drinking and doing coke all night, and I, I don't know how I did that, but I was young, so you could, you know, get two hours of sleep and wake up and do a couple lines and get back to work. But anyway, so... Uh, we're at this place, and to go in, they take your cell phones off, you know, unless you don't have a camera in your cell phone. And this is 2004, 2005, so still some phones without some cameras. And uh, I had a, a phone, uh, and a some of the guys even ripped out the cameras of their phones just so they could take it in because they didn't want to be without it. <laughs> but they didn't really check that hard. I was bringing drugs in and buying drugs on the premises, so you know, security wasn't that tight. Uh, so I just take my camera in and, you know, my girlfriend is with me. We're living in a hotel. She came up cause I was going to be gone for months. So she just came up with me and I wanted to, you know, show her pictures. So I was discreetly snapping pictures with my cell phone camera. And then later on to find out that another guy I work with was doing the same thing and he got caught and he got arrested. And long story short, it's a bit of a process, but he ends up doing a couple months in federal prison. So th this phone, actually, by the way, I had the pictures, and the phone had some damage. Something happened, and we had to mail it back to get repaired. So I sent the phone with the pictures of the, you know, engine room of a classified nuclear submarine, mailed it just back in with whatever. Uh, pretty big, you know, kind of a big deal. So... Then also at this, so that's just one little side note. Then we have when we almost burned down the submarine or catch it on fire. I guess you can't burn down a submarine. So it's in dry dock. So submarine, you know, there's like a, an internal area that's waterproof. And then it's just all these tanks that ballast and it takes in water. But they're all different little watertight compartments. And so when we go in and work there, you have to run lines, like one air, one will be pumping in air and one will be sucking out air just so you don't suffocate. So, 
you know, these places are hard to get into. You might spend 20 minutes crawling through pipes and like these little tubes and it's very claustrophobic. And so we get in there, nobody's coming to get you. You're pretty safe. There's no boss sneaking up on you. There's nobody sneaking up on you. So uh, guys would, you know, would drink in there. They would sleep, uh, smoke cigarettes, you know, smoke crack, smoke weed. Um, I was just snorting and stuff back then. So I, um, although I did smoke crack a few times too. Uh, but what ended up happening is our crew. So it was like a combination of some uh, cleaning rags, which they think might have had alcohol on, got sucked into these pipes. And then our crew, which nobody really knows who did it, it was one of us or all of us, would take our roaches and our cigarette butts and we would blow the smoke in and then we would throw the cigarette butt in the tube. And so we did that and we finished our work and we went out. And over the night shift when we were uh, back in our hotel room sleeping, the submarine caught on fire. The equipment did and it spread and they ended up flying the Secretary of the Navy in and they put us all in like a big auditorium and he basically just yelled at us and, you know, the company yelled at us and said, you know, if submarines are billions of dollars, nobody has enough insurance, you know, we're all going to be out of job, the company is going to be doomed. Um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was a crazy place. I mean, there's other stuff that went on. Um, it was basically just, I mean, we worked hard. We finished the project. Uh, as far as I know, that submarine sailed out of dry dock and was successful for many more years. So, you know, addicts, we, we get the job done, I'd say. Uh, but uh, anyway, I just, you know, thought that was a crazy story. Crazy time. Toodles for Chris. Thank you, John Brown. Finally, uh, a dopey submarine fire story. I wish you guys were smoking crack in the sub, and that's why the sub caught on fire. But either way, a dopey submarine fire story was missing. John Brown, you, of course, get new dopey socks. And there's new dopey socks, by the way. There's new dopey beanies. There's new dopey socks. I, I, I just feel so overwhelmed with work that I haven't posted them because I don't want to get into the thing where I have to ship them. But I will start posting them because maybe they'd be good Christmas gifts. Another good Christmas gift is we're, we're having a crazy sale. It's a fire sale. It's a wicked fire sale, 20 to 50% off on all dopey merchandise in the store. Fucking half price on the really plush DopeyCon IV items. 50% off on lots of Dopey merch. So if you are looking to get some Dopey merch, now is the time to do it. You go to DopeyPodcast.com, click on the shop, and you can get incredibly well-made Dopey merch. Soft t-shirts and hoodies and long sleeves and tank tops for rock-bottom prices. And uh, if you're all fucked up and setting fires on your submarines and getting high and struggling with addiction and you live anywhere near Atlanta, Georgia or fucking Boca Raton, Florida, maybe you should check out Diamond Recovery. Diamond Recovery is an amazing operation. We're friends with Adam and Allison, and they're both incredibly passionate about helping people. Diamond Recovery is an incredible facility. They've compared it to where a hospital and a hotel meet. 
So like the amenities are really, really nice. But what I love about Diamond is they say they treat their patients like family. They make sure that their patients are treated with the utmost respect and care. They also have a new facility opening up just for co-occurring mental health disorders. So if you're looking, so if you're looking for a treatment center and you want one that focuses on severe mental illness and you're anywhere near Florida or Atlanta, Georgia, check out Diamond. They really can handle any addiction recovery needs anywhere near Georgia or Florida. Check them out at diamondrecovery.com or give them a call at 844-909-2525 and tell them you heard about it on Dopey. So I'm sitting here recording the show and my dear friend Aurora sent me a picture and I couldn't believe what I was seeing, so I called her really quickly. <laughs> Aurora, report to the Dopey Nation what just happened. I got a follow request on Instagram from Dopey Podcast USA. And on their account, they have about eight pictures of different powders um, look, looks to be for sale. So definitely someone trying to pretend they're you. and uh, Selling drugs. Actually selling drugs, yeah. You also didn't greet the Dopey Nation in your usual fashion. I know, I know. Well, I, I don't, you put me on the spot about, like, an important security breach. So I was like, what's up, Dopey Nation? So fucking, I just got another note from Instagram, somebody asking if it was me and if I'm dealing drugs now. Can you imagine? Wait, you got that message from who? I don't know. So let me see. Somebody else on Instagram just wrote me. Oh, that's said, because of this this they, account. I know they're requesting dopey fans diabolically. <laughs> horrible. Hold on. We'll report them. We'll report them. Oh, look, a bunch of them. Someone just wrote, "Hey, mate, do you know someone?" I think it's an Australian friend, Mayra. She says, "Hey, mate, do you do you know someone is using the dopey podcast name on Insta?" That is a horrible Australian. Can you do accent. better? No, I can't. I can't do them. I can't do them, mate. Hey, mate, we're selling Xanax. Xanax at rock bottom prices. Um, yeah, my Australian accent's horrible. But Aurora just celebrated eight years. <laughs> so how did you do it, real quick, Aurora? Do the horn. Do the horn. What's the horn? <laughs> what horn? Let me see. That's not the horn. Hold on. That's not the horn. There it is. Yeah. <laughs> Congratulations, Aurora. You want to tell the Dopey Nation? <laughs> I was worried that this show didn't have enough recovery in it this week. So you calling in, telling the Dopey Nation of this scam Xanax ring that's trying— And ironically, the, the theme of the episode this week is this real crime book about a Xanax ring in Charleston, South Carolina. Oh, wow. And then the Insta-fucking imposters are trying to sell Xanax, right? Uh, yeah, I saw some Xanax bars and then some other, like, crushed-up powders, so who knows what it could be. Let's get back to your celebration. What are you doing to celebrate your big eight years? Eight years. Um, going to go to dinner with my boyfriend. Nice. Going to go to a local meeting. Um, have uh, a woman, actually, an Australian friend of mine who just got six months, um, I'm going to talk to her. Nice. Um, yeah, and that's about it. Do you ever go to Narcotics Anonymous meetings just to get an extra black key tag, or you don't do that? <laughs> no. No, I haven't gone to NA since 
when I lived in New York. I think about going just to get an extra black key tag every year. I think we should go together next time we're together and get black key tags. We should go to that Tuesday meeting. That fancy Tuesday meeting? Yeah, yeah. What can we do about this diabolical dopey imposter? Just report it on Instagram and say someone is um, impersonating you. Right. Okay. And you did you are you going to report them as well? Yeah, I'll report them too. Did you like Xanax, Aurora? Yes, I did. I, I love downers. I know. I know. Mm -hmm. Me too. Anything else you want to add before you get back to work? You know, just thank you, Dave, for my sobriety. Um, you're the one who suggested to me I get sober. Do you remember and those days, Aurora? I remember yeah. you were in Los Angeles doing a job, and I think I was walking home from somewhere late at night, and I was on, um, I think it's Essex Fortune? Street. It's Essex, Essex. And, I, and I was getting tacos and you called me and talked about your insanity. And I was like, maybe you should maybe you should go to AA. Yeah. You're like, I've known you 20 years, Aurora, and you've always been high or drunk. So why don't you try, you know, just 60 days, 90 days of, of not using. I remember. It. I thought, All right. Slow, slow your roll. I'll try 30. You were like, I'll try 30. And then what happened at the end of 30? And then I wanted, I wanted those 90 days, man. And then what happened? At the I wanted end of... that. I wanted that 90 day coin. <laughs> right. And then what happened yeah. after the first 90? You were like, I think I want to try another 90. The spirit of the, of the group kept me coming back. Right on. It was a magical group. And you've been working in Fiji for a while. Tell the Dopey Nation about your trip. Yeah. I, but I was in Fiji for three months and I was working it was opportunity of a lifetime, incredible journey, um, re-entering, um, just getting back in the swing of things, um, being back. And yeah, I'm just so grateful for that time I had there. It was, um, it was hard and, but it was worth it. And I stayed sober. Did you go to, <laughs> did you go to any meetings there? No, I didn't go to any meetings there. You know, there was a couple people in early sobriety, um, so I just talked to them and tried to, like, be, you know, a power of example because, you know, it was a, an away job and there was a lot of heavy partying. So, yeah, and there was a lot of, like, you know, activities on the day off that would be, like, all day drinking things. And, you know, you want to socialize and, and participate with the rest of the crew when you're off. But then, you know, you're also like, wow, this isn't fun when people are getting blackout drunk. So it was nice to have a couple other sober people to like hang with. Right. And you famously have uh, an alcoholic drug addict father who's often uh, going nuts. How is your dad doing? Um, he is pretty insane he's not doing well health wise his like legs are failing him you know some of it i think is drug and alcohol related neuropathy so he uses a walker and he can like barely get around so he doesn't want to meet my boyfriend or my stepdaughter when we go upstate new york for thanksgiving because he doesn't want to be seen like that so that's too bad but i understand so i'm gonna go see him for a little bit on my own but last time i called i don't we were talking about me working i mean he's always got he's got so much fucking advice for me unsolicited advice on like career and money and, and saving like and um I, I was talking about retirement and he was like don't worry about retirement aurora that medusa statue i've given you is all the retirement <laughs> you need i'm not kidding he uh, 
he comes back to this all the time. And then he told me the very detailed story of how he acquired uh, the Medusa statue. Hold on, hold on. Explain, explain to Dopey Nation the Medusa statue, please. I have this bust of Medusa that my father gave me. I can't even remember how long ago, 15, 20 years. And do you remember one time, probably about 10 years ago when he was still drinking, sometimes if I wouldn't pick up the phone, he'd go crazy and he'd call me and he'd be like, I'm going to fucking kill you with that fucking Medusa statue that I bought to you, you fucking bitch. Um, oh, God. Um, so what what what's the significance of the statue? I mean, I've seen it. It's a nice statue, but how he, much? He told me, he told me, Aurora, you should check the FBI list for um for missing and and stolen art. Uh, just you know, we didn't we didn't know anything. We can't be liable, but you should check that list and see if the FBI is looking for it. Have you discovered <laughs> anything about? Do you know anything official about the Medusa statue? No, I think once I like looked in the bottom and like Google searched it and found nothing. Imagine if he's right. That would be the best. That would be the best. <laughs> that would be the best. <laughs> Hold on to that Medusa statue. Or... Oh my God. Yeah. He told me he got it from uh, a guy named Fast Eddie who had Coke <laughs> bottle glasses and was a serious alcoholic. And he traded him like food stamps for it. And Fast Eddie had like, gotten it from an older woman that he like did household like you know uh small odd jobs for listen if you when you see your dad for thanksgiving see if you can't get him to record a little explanation of the origin of the medusa statue i think that could be valuable valuable material for the show i i bet i bet he would be down to do it all right. Awesome. Um, is, is there any money money hidden in his apartment right now that we should be aware of? Oh, definitely. He's got the, you know, he moved it. He tells me where he moved it. So you know it's where it cast. is. You know where it is. Yeah. All right. Good, good, yeah. good, good. All right. Well, congratulations on your eight years. Please report those Instagram imposters as soon as you can. Will do, Davey. Thank you. All right. I love you, Aurora. Thank you for calling in. Love you. Or I called you. Minase toodles. Goodbye. Bye. All right. I, I love that uh, Aurora called in out of nowhere, but I don't love that these fucking diab. I mean, like, what do you have to be to know about Dopey and create a fake Instagram account as drug dealers? That's not good. I don't like that. If you guys have noticed that, please send in a email or a voicemail to uh, dopeypodcast at gmail.com. And now finally, it's time for the first dopey true crime episode and or segment. And it's Max Marshall, who wrote a book called Among the Bros, all about a fucked up Xanax ring and murder in South Carolina at the College of Charleston. But before we get to Max and the fucked up story of Among the Bros, I need to mention that another magical sponsor of DopeyCon IV was Imagine Recovery down in New Orleans. Imagine Recovery was founded by my friend Chris and his lovely partner, Felicia. Imagine 
is an amazing place. I've met the staff. I've been to meetings there. They really care about their clients. It is a place where substance misuse and mental health are treated with cutting-edge therapies, care, understanding, and personal connection in an intimate, stigma-free setting. Our boy, Jason Ricci, the amazing satanic or formerly satanic harmonica player, went there and got better. I was there. It is amazing. If you're in New Orleans and you're looking for a place to get better and you're fucked, go to Imagine Recovery. Check them out at imaginerecovery.com. All right, now we're going to jump from New Orleans to Charleston, South Carolina, with Among the Bros author Max Marshall. We're at 0.0, and I'm with author, journalist, Max Marshall. Hello, hello. Welcome. Thank you. And Max Marshall wrote a book called Among the Bros. And Among the Bros is a fucked up, ama- amazing book. It's, it's a great read. I want to start there. Thank you. It's an amazing Thank read. You. It's all about a Xanax ring in Charleston, South Carolina. Yeah. And first of all, what brought you to the subject matter? So... I grew up in the South. I'm the same age as basically all the guys in this book. I was in college from 2012 to 2016. And I saw kind of a, at the time, what I thought was a shocking amount of Xanax flying around. Less so as like a weeknight anxiety drug, although that was part of it, but like more so as like a a party drug. Um, Mixing it with, I mean, you can mix it with a lot of things, you know, like Coke, it helps your paranoia. Acid come down, helps you fall asleep. You know, you're smoking, you get twice as high. But the main thing will be mixing it with like seven or eight natty lights and blacking out. That was like the the sort of goal. Where did you grow up down south? I grew up in Dallas, Texas. So is that, it's Texas considered down south? No, I mean. Texans would say no, I thought. I thought Texas was its own thing. A lot of the sort of cultural uh, institutions that I'm talking about in the book are as alive in Texas as they are in the South. So like fraternities, uh, like football, like there are, there are a lot of similarities, but no, it's its own ecosystem. It's its own thing. We're the only state that's on like its own part of the, we have our own electrical grid. Right. Like obviously it used to be its own nation. Exactly. Yeah. And you were in a fraternity, right? Yes. But in New York, I went to college in, in Columbia, but all my friends in Texas went to school in Texas or North Carolina, Tennessee, and I would visit them. I would see even more Xanax there. Did you do a bunch of Xanax or no? Not a bunch. I've, I mean, I've done it kind of, I don't know, half a dozen to a dozen times before reporting. It was not my drug of choice. I, it, like, that's not really what I look for in, in drugs. But, I was totally addicted to Xanax. Okay, I mean, it's incredibly, for, incredibly for addictive. For many, many, many yeah. years. Yeah. And in fact, so so addicted, yeah. I had many seizures yeah. from, I mean, so this is a different kind of interview for you. For, no, yeah, but I mean, that's obviously so much of what the people, I did, I talked to 120 people for the book, and like, it's so, I talked to so many people who had these seizures, and people don't know going in, that's one of two drugs you can die of withdrawals, and... Trying to quit Xanax is like it's hell. It's yeah. It's 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 a weird drug to be dependent on. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I was dependent on on Xanax and and heroin. Yeah, and and together a very dangerous combination. Exactly. Yeah. And and the reason. So let's get back to the reason you got into the book. When did this story of did the murder story cross your your desk? Like what? So so yeah. So I got out of college in 2016, and I 
was becoming an investigative journalist and I had done some like kind of crime deep dives about drug smuggling. And I basically wondered like, was there a way to write about Sanderson College campuses that wasn't sort of like an eat your vegetables sort of like, oh, this is a problem and here's 10 reasons it's a problem. And here's, you know, what this one scientist has to say, even though I did want to talk to the scientists and things too, but I wanted like kind of a page turning story that would make people maybe care about it more or follow it. And so I, I literally Googled, I was at a coffee shop in Brooklyn and I Googled Xanax bust fraternity. and Because you just wanted that. I just thought I had seen enough Xanax and fraternities that I thought there's got to be more stories like this. I, I had no idea what I'd find. You know, it's just a classic like sort of reverse engineering your way and seeing if you can find like what are the stories that are out there. Before we get to why this story crossed your desk. Yeah. Talk about like, because you were you were explaining this before I had to volunteer what a Xanax act I was. Sure. I, I always have to bring it back to me. But <laughs> but like because when I was in college, yeah. there were very it wasn't a lot of Xanax. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of acid, sure, a lot of weed, a lot of drinking. Yeah. Little bit of little bit of ecstasy, a little bit of coke. Okay. When tell me about Xanax in college and your experience. Sure. So I mean, yeah, I do think when I was in school, it was really sort of taking off. I think I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of reasons, but before the dark web happened, it was pretty difficult to get Xanax in bulk. I mean, it's the second most prescribed psychoactive in America, but to get it in bulk and deal it and be able to sort of like, you know, like industrialize it into a drug operation, you would basically have to have someone connected to the Pfizer supply chain who could, you know, flip you some pills. And that did happen, but it was more rare. But then with the advent of the dark web, all of a sudden you could get Xanax shipped very easily. And in a lot of states, it's a Schedule Four drug. You know, it's tiny, it's odorless, it's like it seems less quote unquote scary than a lot of drugs, I think, for college kids. And so, I mean, I think a lot of college kids think of it as something their parents take when they they're flying or something. And so it which did, it is, which yeah, it also yeah, is that. Yeah, it, it also is that, although it's not even designed for that. It's designed for panic attacks, and like, it's not actually that helpful for daily anxiety, or at least that's what the studies sort of say. But No, it's incredible if you have a horrible panic attack. Exactly, that's what it's, it's like. Or if you're deeply addicted to Xanax. Exactly, and you it's, need really, to constantly it's, really, it's really good at... <laughs> it's really effective <laughs> It's really that. good at scratching that itch. But uh, I don't know, I... I saw a lot of it as, yeah, this kind of party drug, barring out is the phrase. And I'm sure you know, you know, barring I've heard, out. I've yeah. heard, I've heard the phrase. Yeah. <laughs> but what really surprised me was like also the kids who were dealing it. It was a lot of kids who didn't need the money and were kind of like playing Xanax dealer. And like there was a lot of social cachet to that. And so that's what got me Googling Xanax bus fraternity because I saw. Did you see that in Columbia? A little at Columbia, there, you know, there was the like fraternities annex dealer, certainly. And like, but also you're in the city. And so like, it's kind of part of this broader New York drug ecosystem that like touches on college campuses, but is not self-contained to college campuses. Whereas like my friends who are kids at like more rural schools and certainly these sort of big Southern state schools, like drugs are actually running through the fraternity in a different way. And that's kind of what got me like nibbling around this story right the the, the crime network that a fraternity can be and exactly was yeah. in this case so yeah. you google fraternity xanax bust yeah and what's the first thing that pops the up? first result is this article in the charleston post and courier about 
three KAs, two SAEs, and some other kids. And what, say what KA? Kappa is. Alpha Order and Sigma Alpha Epsilon are two of the, the, the two main fraternities in this book. And reputations vary from campus to campus, but SAE was, they were the best fraternity at College of Charleston. They had kids coming from Greenwich, Connecticut, and these big Southern families. They had kind of the biggest parties. KA, uh, it's known for being a very Southern fraternity. Robert E. Lee's their spiritual founder. Uh, it's a lot of like whitewashed wranglers and like a lot of clan clan <laughs> mythology. Yeah, the clan mythology is yeah that's something you only learn <laughs> once you know you go into the lore. But yeah, it's definitely there. And so anyway, yeah, they were the two fraternities that a lot of these drugs were running through. Although it was also a bunch of other fraternities as well. It it was less. I mean, the first thing I learned was it was not a centralized ring. It was more like Mary Kay or Cutco or Herbalife or you know multi level marketing pyramid scheme where the guys on top are making a lot more money than the kids on bottom but it's all kind of deregulated just pills like flying around in all these different directions different people have pill presses different people have these distribution networks the pill press thing blew my mind it's crazy right yeah describe uh, the pill press like what and like what was the first name though before we describe sure. the pill press that that popped on your screen or that caught your imagination so yeah i'm looking at this article and there's just some crazy details in it. it's like these guys got caught with, you know, pound and a half of Coke, 12 pounds of weed. It said 44,000 Xanax pills, um, which, you know, to me was, I guess, kind of a lot. But then one thing that stood out to me is they had a, an assault rifle with a grenade la launcher attached, like a TAC-D ordnance launcher. Um, so I was like, that's kind of crazy. And then I saw the photos of these guys, and they all just had, like, the exact same sort of frat swoop haircut that every kid I knew growing up had um and i had myself for a minute and the first guy that jumped out to me because he was the first name on the press release was this this kid mikey schmidt who goes on to be the the main character in the book so uh, so you bring up mikey schmidt yeah and you make him incredibly likable you know for the most part and i was thinking about all the guys in the book and yeah. i and i wanted to run them by you and sure. get your description of that okay sure yeah. Let, let's start with mikey okay mikey so the book opens, Mikey's showing up to College of Charleston, and he's just had a seven-inch growth spurt. Up until senior year of high school, he was five foot zero. His voice hadn't changed. But I think because of that, uh, you know, like being five foot zero, not having hit puberty yet, but still trying to like play basketball and hit on girls and everything, like he developed this kind of insane swagger that he brought to College of Charleston along with a pretty developed weed dealing business and a fake ID business. And all of that together, I think, was pretty helpful in getting into fraternities. He didn't get... Oh, I don't know if he got into SAE or not. There's no records. Um, but he ended up in KA, the sort of more mid-tier fraternity. And dealing weed, dealing uh, fake IDs, sees the Xanax business from a distance, tries Xanax once, parties too much, drops out of college to Charleston, moves back to Atlanta with his mom, and is working as a valet guy at the Tongue and Groove, which is a big Atlanta nightclub, and starts dropping little weed bags in people's cup holders. Hold up for a second, yeah. though. Because I, I love the lattice of, of personalities yeah, in this story. for sure. And when Mikey gets to College of Charleston, yeah. and he's, he's looking at fraternities, he meets Rob. Yes. Uh, and they smoke weed and they play Super Smash Brothers. Exactly. And they fall in love with each yeah, other. Yeah, yeah. Total. I, the word bromance is overused, but yeah, definitely that's how it was in the beginning. And was Rob 
the Xanax guy at that point? No, I mean, Rob, like, so when he showed up to the College of Charleston, totally different sort of background. He was an Eagle Scout. He was a, a, a literal altar boy. Who do you like more? Well, I only interviewed Mikey. Rob wouldn't speak to me for the book. So that point of view is just going to be baked into the book. It's from Mikey's point of view. And I don't want to, I mean, I don't really care about spoilers one way or another. The, what happens later with Rob definitely changes the way I think a lot of readers will see Rob. Right. Did it change though? Because ultimately, and I'll, I'll say spoiler alert, but yeah. the, the book is, listen, whatever we say about the book, the book is a, a masterpiece and it's like a crime story. It's a drug story. Like the detail, the, the results, you can Google and see them. Sure, yeah, it's yeah, the, yeah. The story yeah, 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 yeah. is what brings you in. Yeah. So do you have a problem with- No, story? no, no. I'm, I'm in, I agree that like, yeah, it's all about the details anyway. So it's, yeah. You, but yeah. You're, the way you tell yeah, the story, yeah. I mean, all the reviews that I've read kind of described it with my experience, which was you don't want to stop hearing what happens. And, yeah. and it's- you know, it's it's sad because there's death and there's yeah. betrayal. Yeah. And um, normally for our show, a drug addict comes on and we talk about <laughs> how they got sober. Sure. So sure. this is yeah. very different. Yeah. For definitely. Me. Definitely. Definitely. Well, no, but we can get into it. You want to talk about Rob betraying Mikey? No, I, yeah. I I'm kind of. I'm, there are so many things okay. I'm interested in. Yeah. Like I'm interested in Rob betraying Mikey. I'm interested in like Biscuit. Yeah. Like who the fuck is Biscuit? Wild character, man. Yeah. What's his deal? Everyone described to me Biscuit as like a quintessential like Atlanta hustler. And I guess like there are all these different worlds happening in Atlanta at once where you have this sort of like country club, uh, sort of buckhead, like old South, old money world. White, white world. White world. And then you also have like fucking Atlanta rap world, which is like, you know, the, in some ways there was a book came out this year called Rap Capital about Atlanta. It's like the, in some ways the center of rap music in the world. And Biscuit... Wait, how is Atlanta the center of rap music in the world? I know as a New York guy that upsets you, but I'm saying like post 2010, it, yeah, like trap music. And right, right, yeah, yeah. right. Certainly uh, not the cradle, but the center now. But yeah, I don't, I don't know enough about yeah, rap yeah, music yeah. now to, to yeah. rebuke. No, you. I, I obviously like 90s. Yeah, that, I'm, I and <laughs> that's a, for another podcast. But, but all that's to say is, Biscuit is one of these guys who bridged that world. He started as. When Justin Bieber moved to Atlanta to work with Usher, Justin Bieber was like a, you know, I don't know how old, 14 years old. He had barely hit puberty. He didn't know anyone. And he meets Biscuit, who's a few years older. And basically they become friends. He starts going to sleepovers at Justin Bieber's house. And within a year, he's Justin Bieber's basically like body man. He's going on the, on tour with Justin Bieber He's like sort of the buffer between everything that could happen and everything that did happen. And from there, he becomes this sort of Atlanta nightlife fixture. But he wasn't yeah. a drug dealer. No. Or a drug addict. No. He was just, he was like a, a party guy. He's a party guy who like, he just, he would introduce people to people. He's the reason that Walk a Flock of Flame uh, endorsed David Perdue for Senate, for instance, a Republican guy. But anyway... There's a night at the Tongue and Groove where Biscuit like drives in drunk in his supercharged Range Rover, gets out, tells Mikey to park the car. Mikey says that's a hundred dollars because you pay a hundred dollars to have the special spot in front of the club, you know, so everyone knows how nice your car is. Instead of paying a hundred dollars, Biscuit pulls out a gun, tells him to park it. Mikey gets in the car, parks the car, but then steals some pills from from the dash. And they just become like best friends. And Biscuit becomes sort of his way into the Atlanta rap world. 
808 Mafia, meeting Ti, all these, all this other. Mikey stuff. and Biscuit have a sort of similar. There's, there's, I see similar styles to Mikey Biscuit, and then later Patrick in a way. Definitely, yeah, I see that for sure. Just yeah. these guys who are very likable. Yeah, that can bridge gaps. Yeah, in, these, yeah, in, I in think yeah, that's a yeah, that's a really good point because, because yeah, a lot of guys in that world, if you put them in that more like rap sort of nightclub scene, they really clam up. And something Patrick, Biscuit, and Mikey had in common is that they did not clam up at all. If anything, they like they really could navigate it. Right. They had they had a gift for it. Yeah. And when do Rob and Mikey start seeing dollar signs to run a ring at KA in, in College of Charleston? So yeah, I mean, from the beginning they're dealing weed. Show up, there's already sort of like these big red tomato cans full of stuff they ship in from California. But you know, a weed's incredibly competitive. Like there's so many guys dealing weed at the College of Charleston and college campuses generally. And also it's just like smells, takes up a lot of space. The margins, the margins are, aren't good, the especially margins if you're a stoner. Yeah, exa- fucking stoner. exactly. Yeah. So and like, yeah, it's and it's nowhere near as addictive as other things. I, I don't think they were consciously thinking about that part at first. Yeah, at first. And when the dark web kind of hit at College of Charleston, all of a sudden you started seeing these kids that like there's this one kid who in the book he goes by Johnny Drama, but he was like an early, he was like a hacker, but he was friends with all the fraternity guys. And basically he, this was even before the dark web really took off, but he managed to get into like Pakistani pharmaceutical portals and could basically get like actual name brand Pfizer Xanax shipped from Pakistan to his dorm. And he made enough money to buy like a a big boat and so, like, there was just these kind of guys who were sort of standing out, like, oh, the, how does this guy have a boat? Like, and so I think that's where the dollar signs started coming in. And then, you know, also just, like, all these kids would go out and, like, some kids would have bottle service at the nightclubs and you could see who has the sparkler on the... But the kids who were making money dealing Xanax, yeah, they stood out pretty quick because, like, the the margins were crazy. I mean, like I said, you have these kids from Westchester and Greenwich and, like, these old Atlanta Memphis families with trust funds at College of Charleston who don't know what anything should cost. They might spend $10 on one two milligram bar of Xanax. And if you're getting it from the dark web, you might be getting that for 10 cents a pill. If you're selling it for $10, I mean, that's- It's a great profit. Yeah, that's a, that's a tidy, tidy margin. So yeah. Especially when you multiply it by exactly. hundreds of thousands Yeah, exactly, of which they did ultimately. So, so Rob and Mikey, what was their relationship with Johnny Drama? So King Street's the main sort of, it's like the Bourbon Street of Charleston. It's not quite as touristy, although at this point it almost is. But like all those guys would go to the same bars. And so you would just kind of see these characters. That's the other thing about this drug ring is like, it was really a lot of things happening sort of parallel to each other. But then there was, it's such a gossipy place that like- you They'd just, hear that Johnny Drama's making exactly, this yeah, money. This guy got a boat or, you know, whatever it is. And yeah. Mikey and Rob are like, fuck, we want to make money like that. And yeah. then meanwhile, status is yeah. everything. Yeah. And and being in a fraternity yeah. is all about power dynamics. Yeah. There's and I think that's something people don't realize outside of the Greek system is just how obsessively ranked everything is. It's like everyone's aware if they're in the fourth best fraternity or if they're in the seventh best fraternity, or if they're, you know, and like it gets more amorphous the further down you go. Like I'm not sure the eleventh best. What's the best fraternity? Well, it it really varies college to college. At College of Charleston, it was Pike and SAE. Pike was the sort of northern kids, like I said, from like 
rich kids. Yeah, yeah. But like specifically Connecticut, Westchester, it was like a very specific sort of people called it boarding school without the nerds. I would say it's like you know Trinity. It's kind of like that vibe. Sure. And then SAE was like kind of a combo of the southern and northern kids. A, a lot of it just comes down to like who's bringing in kids from the wealthiest families and who's having the wildest parties, which obviously it takes money to do. And it certainly takes money to get away with. But yeah, there's a total like totem pole that everyone, you know, and it's like, oh, I'm talking to this girl from a top three sorority. And that's like a big deal. And like, oh, it's crazy. Yeah, it's it crazy. is. It is. And yeah. what was KA considered? They were mid tier. Like everyone was basically like, oh, they're not on my radar or they're sort of like, like they were, they were known as like just very middle of the road. Wind. Very southern, right? Not Very southern, of- but like more like kind of small town kids, and like I mean, there were there certainly you would get kids from these other backgrounds, but they were not dominant in the way of an SAE when Mikey and Rob got there. I think their social status did go up during that time because of all the money and the crazy. Parties yeah, and yeah, stuff. exactly. And yeah. they they wanted to uh, to be Wolf of Wall Street type, so they they chose Wolf of King Street. Yeah, they made shirts with photos of. Leonardo DiCaprio on him and see yeah, I said Wolves of King Street and that's what they yeah so where do Mikey and Rob turn the page in terms of like their ability to make insane money so it's kind of two things Mikey's in Atlanta and he finds a cocaine supplier who goes by the name of Uncle do you think he actually went by the name of Uncle or do you think that was Mikey being slick because he called everybody Uncle I don't know. I or what, was is there any chance it was actually Mikey's uncle? There's there's a small chance. Like I don't I don't know. I mean, like I certainly you know Mikey. If if his uncle's listening, I never would want to accuse anyone of anything. I'm pretty certain that Mikey's uncle is a dopey podcast listener. Okay, a proud member of the dopey <laughs> yeah, the, nation. The dopey nation. Yeah. So, Mikey's uncle. If you if you are listening, I've I've no idea if you were if uncle was a nickname or if he was talking about his father's brother. It is true that Mikey's dad, um, or at least according to Mikey, was involved in the drug trade and drug use on some level. We never really know how much. That, like, you would talk to other kids on campus who would be like, "Oh yeah, he and his dad, you know, flew planes for Pablo Escobar or something." Right. And you know, so like, obviously that stuff can get out of hand quick, like this sort of rumor mill. But all that's to say is Mikey found a cocaine supplier who was a white guy who, at least in the police files, goes by Uncle. And so Mikey all of a sudden had good access to sort of cartel quality cocaine that like most fraternity kids couldn't dream of getting in that sort of bulk. So Mikey can bring this coke from Atlanta to different fraternities around the South, you know, make stops at Ole Miss and Georgia and Athens and Columbia, USC and North Carolina, all these schools. And then on the other end, you have this Xanax ring that's really taking off in Charleston. And this one is a centralized ring. You have this group of guys who are renting beach houses off the coast of Charleston, shipping in pounds and pounds of alprazolam powder. But yeah, they would basically rent a beach house at a time. They had an industrial pill press, and they would print a few hundred thousand Xanax pills a month. And okay, they, here we go. Yeah. Each GG249 tablet started as raw alprazolam powder in a black market Chinese factory connected to East Asian manufacturers by a dark web user in Quebec. Zach's boss ordered over nine pounds of powder at a time. It arrived in North America inside printer cartridges labeled with Mandarin characters. Each cartridge was paid for in Bitcoin and shipped to one of a few destinations around the low country where the organization unpacked it 
and drove it to a pop-up laboratory. A good Alprazolam manufacturing site is hard to find. It needs to be quiet and unassuming, but not so nice that you don't mind wrecking it with benzodiazepine dust. But luckily, a member of their operation had a friend who worked for a beach house rental company. And you talk about getting permabarred if you encounter the dust. Yeah. So yeah, permabar is like this sort of Xanax zombie state where if you're like doing the pill pill press enough and the the dust kicks up on you, it gets on your skin. Some of these guys would actually wear like Tyvek suits or whatever, but like, you know, the sort of like hazmat style. But the ones who didn't... Like Breaking Bad. Yeah, yeah. Stuff like Breaking Bad, The Wire, like these guys watched all that stuff. And so there was also like a cosplay element to it, but then it would get real as the stuff actually leveled up. I mean, it was yeah. pretty real from from the moment it started because it's like there's something about, I mean, like yeah. Breaking Bad or yeah. The Wire, Yeah, you know, obviously as a drug addict and a purveyor of drug culture yeah. with this show or recovery yeah. culture, like we love that stuff. Sure. I yeah. love the fucking Xanax making machine. Yeah. It's like that. It's like it's straight out of like, a junkie's fantasy that they could have a machine or like back in the day, oh, like, like, yeah. like these hippies would have machines that would make doses like yeah, that, yeah, yeah, like yeah. these tab like yeah, yeah, manufacturing yeah, yeah. machines. But you don't seem to like Zach the way you like Mikey and Rob. Well, I only met Zach once. I heard so much about Zach from others. And so a lot of that is just like passing that on. Right. Cause it's like all these, especially if we get in the murder of, Patrick Moffley, all these people just had so much to say about Zach. But I have no ill will toward anyone in this book. I don't mean yeah. like that. Yeah. I mean, you yeah. write more favorably yeah. about Mikey yeah. than you do about anybody. Yeah. But then Rob seems like hardworking. You know what I mean? Yeah. I like the way you... I mean, we like Rob until he fucking betrays Mikey, which is horrible yeah. for, for the reader. We're brokenhearted with all the love between the bros. For sure. And then fucking Zach, like he has the assault rifle with the grenade launcher yeah. attached, but you don't really get the sense that he'd ever need to use it. Definitely. And I mean, the, the funniest thing is it's very easy. I, I have a friend who's more of like a Texas gun guy than me. And he, he was telling me, he was like, it's really easy to get a grenade launcher. It's almost impossible to get grenades. And so usually when people buy that ordnance launcher, they're never going to have a grenade to shoot out of it. And there's no evidence that he had grenades. There's a little yeah. bit of kind of posery description around Zach. Like mm -hmm. he needs to like say yay instead of cocaine. And he said, what were some of his, uh, his little, what did you call him a tryhard? Well, one, a guy called him a tryhard. But yes, I did put that in the book. One of the guys who worked with him called him a tryhard. But at the same time, I think why I put that in there is I think everyone underestimated him. He's, right. He's like, you know, he weighs like 120 pounds. He's all elbows. He's like longboarding around like with a spliff in his mouth and like, you know, sleeping until four. But actually he was by far the most savvy drug dealer in this thing and he got away with it. So I think some of the, when I'm describing him that way, some of it's because that's how people describe him to me. But also I do think it's interesting how much people underestimated him because ultimately he was running the show. Right, he made the most money. By far, it seems. And Was it his Xanax making machine? He was part of the group that, in one DEA interview, he called it like, there was, you know, a guy ahead of him in like their organization. But he was part of the group that was getting these, these beach houses and had the pill presses. Okay, but Mikey and 
Zach never really connected. No, they never knew each other. But Zach provided Rob. Yeah. So it was this. It was this triangle basically. You have Mikey bringing in coke from Atlanta, and Zach bringing Xanax into Charleston from these beach houses, and then Rob as this middleman would get coke from Mikey and Xanax from Zach, and then sell basically each in the opposite direction. So then Mikey could drive back to Atlanta with Zach's Xanax. And Zach could go, you know, anywhere in the South with really good cocaine from Mikey. That's the other thing that I love, the way you paint this picture, like you kind of described in the beginning, that the drug of choice there at the time was alcohol and Xanax. Yeah. And if alcohol and Xanax are the drug of choice, like what are you missing for nightlife? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the answer is something to bring you up. Yeah. I was expecting it to be Adderall for some reason. Yeah. Well, it makes sense because it's such like a pill culture. But yeah, I mean, there's, a, you know, this the sort of like frat guy cocaine thing, you know, that's a that's a deep well to dive into and like gator tail lines and like all the rest like what is a gator tail line exactly it's just a big fat line of cocaine that i guess looks kind of like the tail of a ga- of, you know a southern gator you need to be a southerner to say that line looks like a, ga- a oh, yeah, gator no, yeah. tail you wouldn't you wouldn't hear that in, in brooklyn Manhattan for yeah, sure right? yeah yeah but like yeah gator tail is definitely a, a phrase that i i had heard well before the book <laughs> like yeah of coke coke lines yeah yeah but not at columbia no 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 in the south yeah yeah i think that uh it blows me away. The also like the pre-fentanyl aspect. Yeah, for sure. It's a very specific time, 2012 to 2016. Yeah. Very, very specific. Because yeah. as soon as you get past yeah. if you're in 2018, yeah. it's all fentanyl. And that's and that's what I saw live while doing the reporting was like all of a sudden all these guys would be out of college and it would just be one after the other, like, oh my friend, my fraternity brother, my you know, sibling. That's like people were dying at a way faster clip but it it's post this drug ring especially though if you're xanax dependent definitely and you're dealing with homemade yeah no i mean yeah and like it also it even moved from the dark web to now like you know i had a a friend's little brother pass away getting a xanax that he got off snapchat like you don't even need the dark web anymore like uh, you can get on snapchat now and like instagram dms and things and like those supply chains are basically impossible to regulate. Like, yeah, it's interesting yeah. also that that the the fentanyl powder must be so much cheaper than even the super cheap alprazolam. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. And even at the end of this drug ring, Eric Hughes, who's the guy who kind of was known as the master chemist of that pill press, the reason the feds went after him is he was using something called the U, which is like a synthetic morphine substitute that's why they were interested in the drug ring at all like the, if it had been pure xanax i don't even think that would have explain that how did how did they find out about that well so first friday of spring break patrick moffley is murdered in his off-campus house a block from college to charleston they come to the the crime scene and they find his body surrounded by all these gg249 pills the pills you just read about, like that's, you know, it's those fake Xanax. That pills. Eric and Zach had produced. Yeah. And Patrick was the son of a very prominent sort of real estate developer. His mom had run for Congress. She was on the school board. It was a big deal that he got murdered that close to campus. And so all of a sudden there was all this interest, like, why is this kid lying dead surrounded by hundreds of these fake Xanax pills? And so basically the Charleston PD, DEA, FBI, state law enforcement all created this task force to try to unravel this drug ring. 
And basically they just started like flipping informant after informant. All these college kids started kind of ratting on each other. And they eventually made their way to to Eric Hughes with his pill press, but they also made their way to Mikey and Rob. And, and that's how that all started to unravel. Right. Patrick is a sad, obviously one of the, you know, basically the saddest part of the book. I yes. Guess. Yeah. Because yeah, Mikey's still alive. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And, and, and Patrick came up. His family seems insane. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. A lot of people said that to me and it's like, I think the, and you know all about this with your, your co-host, like the, the black hole of grief when you lose someone is just so, there's no one way to mourn, right? You know, like there's just like when- someone, No, but yeah. they seem crazy before they throw no, I mean, the $70,000 funeral. They're, def- they're definitely like, they, they like to party. But I, but I think like the way they talk about him, they're not just saying like, oh, there was nothing wrong with Patrick's like party demeanor or something. I think it's, it's like, it's almost like a form of unconditional love, especially now that he's gone. Like this is who he was. And like, we're not going to skirt away from that. As a journalist, it's the best you can ask for is to have someone who's like really honest about someone after they go. And maybe and, is that as and and so for Patrick to be the death in the story, yeah, and his family to be so lively, yeah, it it does help tell the story, yeah, for sure. Patrick was a drug addict and a drug enthusiast who winds yeah. up in Charleston, yeah. and connects with Zach. Yes, exactly. And then he starts selling a shit ton of Xanax too. Yeah. And he's murdered. And, and you know, the only kind of characters in the story that aren't white yeah. are the are the kind of very, very famous Waka Flocka Flame, his brother, yeah. and the, the hip-hop scene with Mikey. Yeah. And then it's with this group from the Silver Dollar Bar yeah. that Patrick encounters. Yeah. How imp- and then in the end, it was one of these people of color that got convicted of Patrick's murder. Yeah. So... Can you talk a little bit about like the white black thing in Charleston and, and how it played out in the story? Sure. So, yeah, like you said, Patrick met kind of this, this group of, of black guys at the, the Silver Dollar Bar, um, which is one of those bars on King Street. And they're all from West Ashley. So, the, you know, there's the Ashley River and it literally is the other side of the river. It's just like a different Charleston. Downtown Charleston, you have all these sort of colonial era jewel box buildings that, you know, literally tourists on horse-drawn carriages going by all the time. And then West Ashley, like, it's just a completely different thing. And it's, yeah, I mean, it really kind of still has that deep South, you know, so many of the slaves in America came through Charleston. And like, you feel the legacy of that. But all that's to say is like, Patrick of the kind of guys in his crew, he was by far the most willing to make friends in all sorts of like backgrounds. And this isn't just about race. Like he would also like people tell me like, you know, like they would all be shitting on like the Christian kids or something. He'd be like, hey, man, like shut the fuck up. Like I play tennis with that guy. He's like, right. really, it's like he there was just, that was just like something about Patrick. And like one of the guys at the Silver Dollar Bar, Patrick learned he was homeless and invited him to. He was like, well, I have a I have a floor. Why don't you sleep on my pallet? And so they like he lived with him for a few months. And so like but that did cause, I think a lot of tension with his housemates who are like, you know, these guys are sketchy, et cetera. And so I think like that was just something a lot of people talked about with Patrick, like that conflict, I think, like really played out in kind of the last year of his life. And Patrick also was like the mental health component. Definitely. Definitely. I mean, like, yeah. And his parents were very open, you know, he's had had really struggled with anxiety his whole life and then clearly depression and 
it was sort of the classic self-medication story of like, you know, it's not just that, but I think he was an addict. He was. Yeah. For he, sure. Patrick would have been a great dopey guest. He would have been an amazing dopey guest. Yeah. Like, and also like, I think there's just a sense like you know, like chapter 11 is just an oral history of Patrick's life. And that was one of the most like rewarding, both reporting and writing experiences I've ever had. Basically because like, first of all, Patrick was just one of those guys where like 14 different people say like, he was my best fucking friend. But also like, he would just like, he had a sense of himself as this character and it almost seems like he was like living like, novelistically he was living it out he was living it out and so just the stories just like i can't even tell you how many stories i had to cut like it's just like it's insane give me give us a good patrick story i I didn't even get to go into when he was living in spain i mentioned it like in one sentence that he uh i think he was like on the cover of the barcelona vanguardia yeah he was like pole dancing on a booze cruise because he was like he basically lived there full time where he he would like run booze cruises and then he would like stand on the beach and like basically flirt with girls and be like, do you want to pay me to take you out to bars? And so like, he would just take these like groups of like study abroad kids out for these like sort of like 36 hour benders. But like while he was in Spain, he he got in a fight with this like seven foot tall Romani guy. And like, I think it, it took something like six cops to like wrestle this guy to the ground. And he like, tore down a bunch of scaffolding and was like, like he was just a, he was a, a huge fighter. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, his hands yeah. were oversized because he had broken them yeah, so many exactly. times fighting. But it, it's this kind of crazy thing where, like, yeah, he was always, like, fighting. And, like, one time he, like, took a, a brick to a guy's chest and, like, like I think, like, cracked a bunch of his ribs. Other times he would, like, knock people's teeth out. But then people would be like, yeah, but he didn't have a mean bone in his body. Right, he's like, the he, best. Yeah, <laughs> like, but, but, like, it, there was almost this sense of, like, he wasn't a cruel person. I don't know. Like, you obviously, and I am sure you're noticing this in the way I'm talking about all these people, like, there is a thing when you write about real people, there's it's a really morally complicated thing because it's their story, right? It's not my story. And even like you see that in the dynamic of this podcast, like usually you're getting people's firsthand stories, but here I'm like this person in between. And it is, it's like, it's really morally complicated. I don't, first of all, like I'm on this podcast, things are like going well for me because of these, I'm telling <laughs> these other people's stories. It's like, that's really kind of like, it's no, like, but it's yes. Yeah, but I'm just it's like I just like you you want to be careful. You never want to be that person who like comes in, gets a bunch of stories about someone and then is sort of like, "Well, I like you're you, opportunistically benefiting from their Yeah, demise. and then and then coming and being like, "Oh, well, he's a, you know, like shit talking and you know like you just Well, good I, for you, Max. Oh, I, I'm think not, that, I, I think that, that doesn't nice. make, I think that, that doesn't make me a a good person. It's more it's just like something I'm always if anything it's like this guilt, right? Cuz you're just like these are other people's stories and like you try your best to get it right. You like talk to as many people as you can and you check it a trillion times. And like you also try to implicate yourself. But at the end of the day, it is it's complicated shit. You know, it's like, well, it's a you're, it's it's a story about a bunch of different phenomenon that happens exactly. in our country yeah. at the same time. 100 percent. And when yeah. you're when you're an investigative journalist, yeah. like are you traveling to south carolina a lot like how do you do the work yeah so i i definitely went to charleston a decent amount a lot of my reporting was during covid lockdown i had started reporting as a magazine piece in 2019 so i was down there a good what amount. was the magazine well so it was going to be for the atlantic and then covid happened my editor got laid off and that's when i turned it into a, a book idea um also, you're like maybe this could be a book yeah well also the story just turned out to be so much bigger than i thought when i started reporting first of all like 
finding out that they had confiscated millions of pills instead of 44,000. And then also finding out that KA had had, you know, all those kids die in a very short span in 2012. And then just finding out everything about Mikey in Atlanta. And then also just the sort of like fact that it was hitting all these other college campuses. It just kept fractaling. The sprawl. The sprawl and like intensified. Yeah. yeah, Like it definitely is an 80,000 word story, not a, you know, 5,000 word story. Well, I I feel like that thing about Zach might have been the hardest for me for some reason to stomach. Yeah. Because you have all these people going down and you have Zach. Let's see if I have this right here. After the search team went upstairs and cut the lock to unit 4249, which was cleaner than the second floor unit, past the metal door, the officers found a a brown box, a large plastic container, and three priority mail envelopes. They opened the container and saw thousands of Ziploc bags. One of the bags held 27 grams of cocaine, and a few thousand others held a few hundred GG249 bars each. After sorting through the Ziplocs, they listed their seizure as 6,947.62 grams of alprazolam, which by a math of 2 milligrams per pill comes out to about 3.5 million Xanax bars. In addition, they found 25 grams of MDMA, 169.49 grams of Xanax powder in a backpack next to the TV, a 9mm handgun, the fucking rocket launcher, fucking 27 grams of Coke, 25 grams of Molly. It's like, and then what did the guy, what happened to Zach? Well, so, and this is what I mean about people underestimating Zach is like, uh, then you find out that he was working at that scale. But all that's to say is um, Zach over the years had been arrested with basically, I imagine, most of the drugs you've discussed on this show and even a few that maybe you even haven't and uh, has never gone to prison. And there are a few different theories about why, but I can say having investigated the Charleston story, he is an incredibly, incredibly effective informant. He, he was able to put a lot of different, basically most of the guys in the drug ring that end up getting arrested is because Zach either gave information or, or a war wire. See, that was something that was really interesting to me that I didn't understand. Yeah. yeah. Like Zach gives up Rob. Yeah. Rob gives up Mikey. Yeah. And Mikey gives up nobody. Yeah. Why would it be that they'd rather get Mikey than Zach and Rob? So the reason Zach could flip on Rob and Rob could flip on Mikey is there's really not that much fear in flipping on a fraternity kid. They might, you know, like, have their boys come try to beat you up or, you know, their dad will keep you from getting a job or something. But like, there's not the threat of violence. But Mikey, he was getting cocaine from, like we talked about, cartel connected sources. So if Mikey said a word, he could, he could die. And so I think that's why Mikey didn't flip. The reason I think they're more interested in Mikey than the others is there still this idea of cocaine as this much sexier drug than Xanax? Schedule one. Yeah, exactly. And so I think, you know, one of the lawyers told me, and I have no idea if it's true, it's secondhand, but like that one of the police guys was like, well, I don't give a damn about Xanax. I'm interested in the cocaine. And so I think that was part of it too. That's that's really interesting to me. And, and just in your kind of understanding of these people, yeah. 
Do you think Mikey would have flipped on somebody that was if if he was getting his coke from Zach? He would say no, and I'm inclined to believe him. He really does feel really strongly about not cooperating. That having been said, when you're staring at you know the mandatory minimum laws that they have, and you're looking at like 20 plus years it becomes pretty hard not to. So I, I I say this in the book, and this is what I mean about like trying to implicate yourself. Like, I think I would have flipped on. No, that's yeah, one of yeah. my favorite parts yeah. of the book. Yeah. It's like, because you set up this relationship between Rob and Mikey that uh, I could relate to. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I, ha- I have very, very close friends who I did a, smoked a lot of weed with and played sure. a lot of video games with and, yeah. <laughs> and dreamed big together. Yeah. Then these guys made maybe millions of dollars was it millions you'd say hundreds well, of thousands yeah i mean the the drug ring itself certainly <clears throat> was making millions it's it's hard to say with rob and mikey but yeah that that certainly could be in the conversation right and they did it together and they they were living the fantasy and yeah. there was and you were reading their texts yeah and their text was like i love you man i'd never Definitely, I'd, yeah. I'd never turn on you yeah, yeah. fam yeah, you yeah, know whatever yeah, yeah and um and then in the end rob did flip on him but you wrote that like before i say this yeah that Rob betrayed Mikey. I, I want to make it clear that I talked to my friends and they all would flip on me in a second. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I think it's important. You definitely, know? definitely, yeah. Because like, especially because I didn't get to talk to Rob, like it's important to like throw that in there. And like, I don't know, my least favorite type of nonfiction writing is when like, well, it's two things. It's when like the writer, there's a false sense that like the narrator has like a God level view and just knows everything. Because that's not true in nonfiction. Like everything is from a source. And then second, like, yeah, when there's just like that holier than thou sense of sort of like, well, here I am sitting in Brooklyn or wherever. And I'm like, look at how shitty this, you know, and I, I had had that conversation with friends and yeah, it was just sort of like, Max, I love you, but like, I would like, I, I would ride on anyone except for like my immediate family. And then yes, I might ride on them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It depends on the <laughs> family just, member. Yeah. I, I'm, just, I'm yeah. just kidding. Yeah. Yeah. I would never yeah, do yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> But it's like it's like when you're facing consequences like that, yeah. it's it's very, very serious. Yeah. And like let's go down the list. Like what who exactly it was weird, like yeah. Charles. Yeah. Like where did he come from and how did he go down for the murder? So yeah, Charles is one of the guys that Patrick met at the Silver Dollar Bar. Um and he was a black guy, person yeah. of color. Yeah. And Patrick called him Dollar T. People called him T because Trey, he was uh, Charles Mungin the third. And the day Patrick died, like I said, they found all these pills surrounding him. But before he, his sort of last words were dollar T and Jordan Piasante robbed me. And so Jordan Piasante was Patrick's sort of on and off again girlfriend. And dollar T, they found out through texts and then through a lot of satellite footage and GPS tracking was this guy who sold Xanax in very small quantities. Like the past purchases he'd had from Patrick would be a few hundred pills. But that day he set up a 10,000 pill purchase with Patrick and witnesses saw three black guys running out of the house. And so immediately the search becomes like, we need to find the three black guys who are connected dollar T. There's no evidence that Charles pulled the trigger, but there's something called the hand of one hand of all rule, both in federal court and in South Carolina. And it's basically if you and I rob 0.0 together and on the way out, I kill the the security guard, we're both going down for murder. Even if you were just outside with the getaway van, right. like we would both go down for the murder. 
And so that's that's what happened here. And he got life plus 30. Do you think he did it? I don't. There's no evidence he pull, pulled the trigger. Like, but he was in on it. The robbery. There's there's so much circumstantial evidence that, yeah, he he set up the pill purchase. It's all in the text. He was driving away. That's all pretty established. I don't think he wanted Patrick dead and I don't think he pulled the trigger, but I think he is basically doing the time for whoever did. And what what happened to Jordan? So the day of the murder, Jordan flew to New York for either a wedding or a cousin's baptism, depending on who she told. And um, because she wasn't there the day of, she was. So just the fact that she said two different things is sketchy. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting for sure, but. Yeah, she could prove she wasn't there, and that I think was enough for the Charleston PD. Right, and she was not a black guy. Yeah, but that's a whole other whole other story. How do you get all the texts? So Rob gets arrested, dealing a pound and a half of cocaine to Zachary Kligman. Kligman is wearing a wire. His Cadillac is rigged up with a camera. The Charleston police immediately take Rob's house, take him downtown, and give him the option. Basically, immediately, you know. You're looking at 20 plus years, or you can tell us where you got this cocaine. And Rob wore a wire, recorded a bunch of phone calls with Mikey, and turned in all of their texts with each other over like a multi-year period. And all those texts are now in the, the police files. It's amazing, though, what, you, what you've unearthed. And, and, and also, like, when you take yourself out of the story and you're like, I don't want to be an opportunist, you're, you're telling an important story yeah. in this era. Yeah, for you sure. know, especially with these young white men. And, and another really I should have probably led with this was the statistic about the place of fraternity brothers in our culture. Yeah, 100 percent. Like you said, every president except how many? Four, I think, since 1825 or something. Fraternities used to put this in their pamphlets because it's like, oh, join us. And it makes you a leader. But I think it's also join us and you're joining the, the elite and what fraternity were you in? I was in Delta Sig. And what made you join? I mean, I think it was this sort of, I, I didn't show up planning on joining, although like both my parents had been in Greek life and like all my friends in high school joined that stuff. But like, I think it was the classic sort of uh, cocktail of sort of loneliness and wondering what your identity is. And you're at, you're in this new place and like, you're like, you know, how am I going to make friends? How am I going to meet girls? Who am I? Like, but I, I, I had very mixed feelings about it. I think that's why I wanted to write about it because I felt the seduction and the destruction, I guess. Like, it really has a deep pull. And I think in some ways, like, loneliness is such a problem. And like, the lack of group identity is such a problem. And like, yeah, it's good. Like, I'm all for kids having like, a, a drinking club or whatever it is to just like you know, hang out and it, there doesn't have to be any resume or like sort of activity beyond like we're here to hang out. But once you get into the sort of idea of like, yeah, but there's also like lobbyists in Washington, D.C., like representing your interests and like these national organizations with their own like insurance language and like team of lawyers and like in like this whole history, like that feels a little unnecessary. Yeah, I came away from this book like wishing I had been in a fraternity and wishing I had an Alprazolam padding <laughs> machine. <laughs> that, that, yeah. Those are my two takeaways. The, yeah, the, the machine is, that's some like real Willy Wonka shit if you're into yeah, Xanax. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, yeah. I, I really, really enjoyed yeah. my Xanax. Here, you, this is what it says about fraternities. Behind the pop culture cliches of Greek life lies one of the major breeding grounds of American power. 
And do you think that's going to change now? That fraternities will no longer be a, like a breeding ground of power? Well, sort of at the end of the book, you posit that maybe in this new age of racial equity that fraternities lose their juice. So I'm talking about that period from 2012 to 2016. In 2016, for a moment, and that's the second to last chapter of the book, it felt like fraternities were losing their juice. So many were getting kicked off campus. There was like, and it was part of this broader like cultural moment of like, oh, we're about to have our first woman president. And like, you know, uh, like the good old boys aren't in control anymore. And like fraternities are a thing of the past, toxic masculinity, patriarchal structures, et cetera, et cetera. But then I think from 2016 to now, you see that like, no, that didn't happen at all on a broad cultural level or in terms of fraternities, like they're incredibly resilient. And I think I think at maybe a school like Amherst or Williams or something, you won't see fraternities. But I think at a school like... Are there no fraternities at Amherst? I feel like in the... I, th- I can't remember. There's got to be like secret society. Yeah. I, th- I, I want to say it was Amherst that got rid of them altogether. But like, yeah, I, I think that's more the exception than the rule. And honestly, I think part of it is because fraternities create this separate campus for the elite, right? Like fraternities didn't get invented until the 1800s when these elite schools started having ministerial students. So people were studying to be ministers would show up and they came from more middle-class backgrounds. And so all of a sudden there became like a need to be like, okay, well, how do we create a club just for our people? And that's how fraternities started. And so at a big state school, when you have kids from all sorts of backgrounds, there you need like the quote unquote sorting hat system to be like, okay, well, the people who went to these private schools or from these neighborhoods, we're going to hang out together in this system. But at a school like Amherst, when like it's kind of small enough that everyone feels like they're the, in the elite, you don't necessarily need the separate campus. I feel like, I want, did they used to have frats in Amherst? I think so. I, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely ahead of my skis on this one. Like I'm not, <laughs> but I think they did. Yeah. My first, and I should have mentioned this at the beginning, but I didn't want to make this all about me. My first drug dealing experience happened at a fraternity in Columbia. Oh, no way. Where I was 17. Nice. I, I was in a band. And, okay. And, and one of the guys in our band graduated ahead of me uh-huh. and went to Columbia. Yeah. And joined a fraternity. And, uh, and that summer, like I was, I don't know, I, was, I think I was going to be a senior in high school. Yeah. No, I was going to college the next yeah, yeah. fall, and I went to the frat party, and and I didn't smoke so much weed yet. Yeah, but he takes me into his room and he opens up a drawer full of ounces, and he's like, "Why don't you take an ounce and go sell it, and and bring me back the money?" And, so he gave it on consignment. Yeah, yeah. he fronted me the yeah. ounce, and I never went back. And it was my favorite. <laughs> I, it was like it was just one of those things, and I was like, "This is the great. This is." That's in like my head. I have the top 20 things that ever happened to me. And that guy, <laughs> it's probably one of the worst things that ever happened to me. But it was in my head. It was like, oh, my God. It was For so sure. great. It's just funny that like how things cosmically align that you went to Columbia definitely, and went definitely. to a fraternity. Yeah. I have a podcast about drug addiction because I wound up becoming such a horrible drug addict. And it might all be traced back to a fraternity that, in Columbia. Yeah, that is wild. Do you remember what fraternity it was? No. Because in... The year before I got there, and this I imagine was well after your friend was there, but there was a FBI bus called Operation Ivy League, where they busted a bunch of fraternities. For, for what? I want to say it was Molly, Acid, Weed, and maybe Blow. I think that was the or I don't know. It was one of those classic sort of like, but it 
the funny thing is it actually wasn't the quantities were like so much smaller than what we talked about in the Charleston story. But the fact that the FBI called it Operation Ivy League, it had a way bigger like news footprint. It gave it the, juice. Yeah, yeah, exactly. For sure. Yeah. So let's go down the list of what happened to everybody. Okay. Patrick died. Yeah. Mikey is serving how long? 10 years. No parole. How long has he been in already? He's about halfway done. All right. Does he have a phone still? Yeah. Could he call into Dopey? Yeah, you could. Um, I haven't, I haven't talked to him. I last time I talked to him was last week, but yeah. Well, ask him if he would do it. Yeah, we'd record that. Okay, yeah. Rob. Rob is out of he. He went to a because of partially because of his cooperation. He ended up in a. It's not a juvenile prison. It's like South Carolina has this thing called the Youthful Offender Act. It's like for like in between juvie and adult prison, and he did a two years there more or less and now is back in Alabama where his parents live working as a, a salesman. And Rob seemed like such a high achiever. Definitely, yeah. Eagle Scout, National Honor Society, president of the fraternity. Like uh, budding yeah. marine biologist. Yeah, yeah. So he did marine biology work in Bali. He, uh, right before the drug bust, he had texted Mikey that he was thinking of going to law school. And I think he would be in, from uh, only secondhand, once again, never spoke to the guy, but like, I think he would probably be a great lawyer. But instead, he's a salesman. Yeah, although, you know, he's still young. He's in his, I mean, he's my age, so I guess he's late 20s, early 30s. And so who knows what will happen. And you never talked to him? Mm-mm. Do talk, you think to, he... talk to his lawyer. Talk to, obviously, tons of people who knew him well. But Do you think you ever will? I would love to. I mean, I don't, this is obviously a story he doesn't want out. You know, simple as that. Like, he, uh, it's not something he's proud of. I'm sure he wants to move on from it. And I think especially the way it ended with him and Mikey, that's just not something he would want out in the world. But I hope if he reads it that he feels like even though that that truth came out and he doesn't want it out, that he got like a fair shake. And Mikey's take on Rob now. Mikey's really, you know, angry. He feels betrayed. Um, But, you know, even now he'll be like, I loved that guy. And our friendship was a beautiful thing until it wasn't. Until I wound up serving 10 years in jail. Exactly. But yeah, of course he's, I mean, like, I don't even know what forgiveness looks like there because it's just like when you're sitting there for 10 years, that's just, yeah. And Zach. Zach, I mean, I saw him at his parents' shop in Myrtle Beach. What kind of shop was it? It's a gag gift shop. Kites and costumes and whoopee cushions, all sorts of stuff. It's very beloved in Myrtle Beach. And then he he now has a startup that does custom printed dime bags and now i think also like smell proof duffel bags to, i mean he's an incredibly entrepreneurial guy all for the drug trafficking trade yeah in grinders i mean i think it, you know it, it's it's all marketed to where it's not saying like this is drug paraphernalia or this is for drug trafficking but yeah i mean it's all but he, he found the sort of legal way to to kind of put that his knowledge to use and um do you think and, and does Mikey still have relationships with Biscuit and the 808 crew and all that? Yeah, stuff? I mean Mikey, like it's you know, it's it's interesting to watch while he got put away the some guys Mikey has a phone, you know, he can keep in touch with anyone. Some people have done an amazing job of keeping up and then some people like like don't respond at all. But I do think, yeah, Biscuit and some of those guys in the rap world have been the most loyal friends. Wow. I think this book is amazing. Thank you so much. I had one more little quote I pulled. Even compared with the other drugs the KA sold, Prazolam bars are hard to quit. Xanax turns, and I love the way you describe this, Xanax turns down the electricity in the brain to an almost unreachable level of quiet. But six or so hours later, the calm recedes and the noise rushes back. This fresh chaos calls for another 
QB, which I'd never heard before. It's a quarter bar. I only ate bars by the fucking <laughs> yeah, full size. With QB yeah. sneaks, yeah. Yeah, I don't know about QBs. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> and when the body develops an alprazolam tolerance, it requires a higher dose to get the same cure. Although Xanax is incredibly effective against panic attacks and seizures. It's funny, you were just saying this. It's therefore a pretty disastrous way to treat daily anxiety. And then I love the way you described the music. Uh, by the time Mikey moved to Atlanta, everyone from SoundCloud rappers to Young Thug sprinkled the feeling of barring out into their songs, rapping over weightless synthesizers about eating Xanax. The vibes kept getting hazier, and on Travis Scott's Sicko Mode, the most inescapable rap song of the late 2010s, Drake described a private jet flight as, I took half a Xan, 13 hours later till I land, had me out like a light, like a light, like a light. So, like, how important is Xanax to that era of pop culture and hip-hop specifically? 100%. Well, it's also funny, Drake saying he only took half a Xan and he's out like a light. Because, yeah. It's he's like a he, pussy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah, all that's to say is, I mean, like, Xanax rap, that was, you know, kind of starting with Lil Peep. But, I mean, there was literally a rapper called Lil Xan. Yeah, sure. Lil Pump, when he hit, I want to say it was 2 million Instagram followers, he had a cake shaped like a Xanax, like, brought to him. It was... It was sort of the dominant drug of that era of rap music. And then you started to like um, Juice World, you know, when he died. All the, it, there was sort of a, and especially after Lil Peep's death too, there was sort of a an anti-Xanax movement in rap where rappers would like sort of tweet or say on Instagram, like, no more Xanax. And I don't like the, the music, but I'm old. Yeah. But like... I don't like, it's like so lazy. It's well, lazy it is, like it's Xanax. This, it's that feeling of feeling nothing, you know? And it's sort of like, in some ways, like it's kind of this incredible feeling of like floating and like the everything's beautiful and nothing hurts. Well, it's the I don't give a fuck. Yeah, exactly. For real. Yeah, like truly, like I don't give a fuck. Because yeah. I don't, I can't. Yeah, like <laughs> I'm, I'm incapable. Yeah, I'm chemically incapable of giving fucks. And like, so yeah, I think for a minute it was a pretty rich well for music, but it kind of, it was it was a snake eating its own tail because you can only get so slow and so hazy and so ethereal before it just becomes like vapor and disappears. But it, it was incredibly successful. For sure, for like a solid decade almost i had a really nice run and I, and I think if you go back and listen to like Lil peep or something there's some amazing stuff in there uh future like incredible young thug but it became like by the time you're at a little pump it's a kind of a parody of a parody maybe a little yeah i i need to educate myself on this music yeah all right max this has been very very cool yeah thank you yeah yeah, yeah. please check out among the bros it comes out tomorrow are you tomorrow, very excited wherever books are sold yeah man i mean it's crazy it's this is your what, first book first book four years of, of work so how excited would you say you are on a scale of one to ten i mean like i get uh, part of what drew me to the story is like i have really bad anxiety i get like panic attacks so like sometimes if it gets too close to 10 i spiral to zero but i would say right now i'm at a i'm a solid eight you're excited yeah i'm excited the, today's a good day and then knock on wood we'll see how tomorrow goes do you take xanax for the panic attacks no i, me I meditate <laughs> and i um yeah that's mostly what i do i mean like I've definitely self-medicated with other things, but not Xanax. Really. What do you self-medicate with? The drinking, smoking, uh, smoking weed. Yeah, and you don't want to say what drugs you do on dopey. I know that's bad. Yeah, that's I, a horrible, I, yeah. horrible thing. Yeah. Do you eat clonopins by the handful? <laughs> no, I was, I was just, I was more of like a ketamine guy than uh, yeah. How often do you do ketamine now? N not, not really much anymore. Well, we'll leave. Well, I don't want to out you. Vacation. I don't want to. I don't want to out your your ketamine addiction yeah. until you're ready. 
Yeah, we can. Yeah, we we can do another episode. Talk about that. And when I lived in Vietnam, it was all about the the happy balloons. What are the happy balloons? It's just a really good rebrand of the Whippet um, nitrous. Yeah, that's one of my favorites. Yeah, but in Vietnam, you can get it on the menu. Like you can get beer on where the menu. in a bar? Oh yeah, restaurants. Nitrous bars. in yeah. the bar? Oh yeah. In Vietnam, You'll is be- it, would that be a relapse for me? I don't know. I mean, that's a, the answer that's is a, yes, like a sponsor Max. question. But the yeah, answer is I, yes. But like, uh, yeah, I mean, you'll be at like a nightclub and there will be guys in suits, women in silk dresses, just like huffing balloons of nitrous. It's everywhere. When's the last time you did a nitrous balloon in Vietnam? Well, I, I lived in Vietnam from 2017 to 2018. Then I went back there to do a drug investigation also in 2018 left kind of in a scary state having investigated way more dangerous drug traffickers than anyone in this book and haven't been back since. So what's your draw to this drug culture? I don't know. I mean, I think like the funny thing is it started, I did a profile in GQ of this Hollywood director and it was just going to be a little web piece about, it was the guy who made Kong Skull Island, the King Kong movie they filmed in Vietnam. He was 35 years old. The movie made half a billion dollars. And after that movie, instead of staying in Hollywood and making another movie, he decided to move to Ho Chi Minh City and become the tourism ambassador for the, the government. And so I basically like wrote a story of like, why is this guy doing this? Was that movie good? Yeah. I mean, I don't, that's not like really my genre of movies. I thought he did a very good job of it. But uh, right before the story ran, my girlfriend at the time, now wife had like a cancer scare. So I had to like put the story on the side and while it was sort of sitting on the back burner, he went back to the same nightclub he had taken me to where everyone does happy balloons. I, it, in the south of Vietnam, they call them funky balls. It's a big north-south divide, but I lived in the north, so we called them happy balloons. But anyway. This is really good material yeah, for me. Thank yeah. you for that. <laughs> but yeah, he went to this club um, and a group of Vietnamese Canadian drug traffickers attacked him beat him to the ground, took a Hennessy bottle, smashed his head in, and basically destroyed the whole nightclub. And he had contusions, hemorrhaging, internal bleeding, massive concussion. They thought he was going to die. And when he woke up, he asked, who did this to me? And the police basically said, it's best you don't look into it. And I was 22, but I was the only journalist he knew in Vietnam. So he called me and said, like, can you help me solve this case? Wow. And so that's how I like got involved in all of this. But you're not dealing with that story. Well, not in this book. Yeah. No, but are you working on a book on that? Oh, no, no. Uh, Too scary. Well, yeah, and I, we kind of solved the case, and it's kind of self-contained. But yeah, it's not. those are not necessarily guys that you want to you know, poke the nest too much. What about the happy balloon-ketamine combo? Was that a thing? Yeah. I see uh, you kind of licking your lips yeah. when I mention it. <laughs> yeah. You can, I mean, happy balloons, you can kind of mix with anything, right? Because it's such a quick. Oh, it's a good yeah. pass. I mean, you know, it's the Grateful Dead's like kind of low key favorite drug. Oh, too. yeah. yeah it's so just like the greatest the, thing. Um, and then outside dead shows, you'll see the the nitrous mafia. It's actually a pretty violent world. Cause, what about exploring the nitrous mafia? Well, but that's the thing is the nitrous mafia kill people. Like, I'm not sure I want to like <laughs> step on their turf. Yeah. That nitrous mafia, man. What do you know about it? My college roommate's from Philly, and I guess the Nitrous Mafia is especially strong there. But, like, there's kind of a turf war because being outside these shows, being able to be the balloon person is incredibly lucrative. Oh, yeah. And so, like, if you and me went to, like, a dead lot. And Somebody tr- might murder us for trying. Well, I don't think – I think it's a little more kind vibe at dead shows. But I do think at, like, some shows, if you are trying to sell – you can at least get your ass kicked, like, pretty quick. Do, do they sell balloons at any of these like Lil Xan shows? And stuff? I don't think balloons really crossed over. It's kind of interesting the drugs that were and weren't used in rap culture. Mikey and I have talked about this because he was like, 
because I was sort of like, oh, you're getting this Coke. Are you selling it to the rap world? And he was like, no, rappers don't do Coke like that. Like, it's all like Percocets, Xanax, weed. It's like a very specific set of things. Yeah, rappers don't want to walk around holding giant giant balloons. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess, yeah. It, also, yeah, it doesn't fine. look that cool. Yeah, exactly, yeah. If you're the Grateful Dead and you already look goofy, it's fine. I think Lil Wayne could have been a nitrous guy. Yeah, I could see that. Uh, he could have made it big for everybody. Yeah, yeah. They missed it. That would have that would have really united the country, actually, yeah. If Lil Wayne yeah, had, if, done if nitrous, he had done nitrous. yeah. It's like a what-if story. Yeah, kind of would have united the, the jam zombies, the Wookiees, and... One day, yeah. one day there will be the chosen one. Yeah, who, who brings you, balloons yeah. to the yeah, who brings balloons to the rap community, yeah. uniting yeah. the subcultures yeah. across the country. See, that's I want my se- my second book to be a feel good book. So maybe that's the goal is finding yeah the balloon. Max, I appreciate you. I think this is a lot of fun. Absolutely, yeah, I really enjoyed it. All right, that was Max Marshall. You guys should totally get his book Among the Bros. It is uh it's a it's a really good read. Really, really fun read. If you're a fan of drugs, addiction, dumb shit, bros, Xanax, fraternities, true crime, the South among the bros is a great book for you. And if you're looking for another recovery podcast, I would totally check out Recovery in the Middle Ages, a podcast all about two middle-aged Suburban dads in their pursuit of life, love, and recovery. Listen as they discuss current topics of interest to the recovery community, including 12-step, the latest books, medical research, movies, and they talk about their daily struggle to maintain their recovery and anonymity in the world of soccer moms and PTA meetings. If the neighbors only knew, find recovery in the Middle Ages wherever you get your podcasts or at middleagesrecovery.com. Also, if you're looking for stickers, customstickers.com is the best sticker place ever. They make beautiful stickers. They make them quickly. The quality is super great, and you get them fucking fast. If you want new stickers, go to customstickers.com. And make sure it's custom stickers with an S dot com and not custom sticker dot com. And use the code DOPEY20 and save 20% off your stickers. They make beautiful stickers. And if you're listening to this and you want a free dopey sticker, this is an offer for one free dopey sticker right into dopeypodcast at gmail.com. And I will send you a sticker. And if you want a bunch of stickers, you can buy them or even better. You can join Patreon. There's going to be a bonus Dopey Patreon episode up, I think, today. Or maybe, I don't know when it'll be up. This week, I haven't done a lot of Patreon. There's been a lot of family crises, so I haven't done a lot of Patreon. But look for a shit ton of Patreon next week. If you want the tiers, you spend nothing, you get everything. Spend. I don't like anyone signing up for two bucks, but if you're broke, sign up for two bucks a month. Don't sign up for two bucks. Five bucks gets you into uh, the Dopey Patreon Zoom, which is the place to be. It also gets you into the Sober Buddy Zoom every Wednesday. Ten bucks gets you stickers, a pack of stickers. Fifteen bucks gets you stickers, socks, and access. And twenty bucks gets you the beanie, the stickers. Maybe I'll throw in socks. That's crazy. I don't know. 
Join for 20 and you'll get some good fucking shit at www.patreon.com slash dopeypodcast. So I told you about the stickers. Did I tell you about Quest to Recovery? It's a treatment center in California. It's a good treatment center in California. We need to mention them because they sent Sean Weiss to DopeyCon IV. So we love Quest to Recovery. If you're looking for a spa out there, check them out at questtorecovery.com. I think. Let's see if that's really the website. Yeah, questtorecovery.com. Now, I feel like we didn't have a good segment with my dad in a while, so I got my dad back on the show. But I want to suggest something for all the deadheads out there in uh, the doposphere, or the dopeyverse, or whatever you want to call it. There's a podcast which I've mentioned before, which is the Good Old Grateful Dead podcast. But this season of the Good Old Grateful Dead podcast, I don't know why I'm doing an ad for them. They're, they're covering the record Wake of the Flood, and I'm not that into Wake of the Flood. I'm really not. I like the songs on Wake of the Flood, but I don't like the recordings that much, except for one song on Wake of the Flood, which is this beautiful song called Stella Blue. And the episode about Stella Blue on the good old Grateful Dead podcast is so beautiful. Like, oh, my God. If you're looking to learn about the Grateful Dead and you want to hear a beautiful song, listen to that Stella Blue recording. And it makes me think of this old friend of mine, Scott Honig, this big idiot, and he would do his Rodney Dangerfield impression. He'd be like, hey, Stella Blue, she needed the money. Or maybe that's a Andrew Dice Clay thing. Anyway, it's stupid. Here's my dad rounding out the show. house with my dad hello everybody my dad is as the as the, the jews say as the yiddish say hawking me a chinik about my finances yeah well look you know, the idea the idea of assuming one's responsibility is is really part of recovery it's a big part of recovery. have you ever considered working in a treatment center dad never maybe no. maybe you can uh, no i've got no act didn't they throw, what is the place down renaissance they wouldn't even let me come <laughs> for what to, to come to the family meeting unless i got <laughs> did you hear that the interview with that guy chris paulson who had an experience at renaissance and you didn't listen to that one huh it was a lot of uh a lot of renaissance mudslinging the, was that was that the one after dopecon 4 iv i mean sorry no it was it was i heard that i didn't hear the one after dopecon iv didn't hear that one did but, you hear then chris paulson talked about renaissance I do remember somebody saying negative things about it. So you don't really remember this? No, of course not. But it was a lot of anti-Renaissance. So you're saying that when I went to Renaissance, they told you 
uh, not to come because you are too codependent. I was I was too, enabling too, too too bereft. I had to go to Families Anonymous to get training first. Well, that was when, and and I I still, to this day, I don't have pain or regret about it. But I wonder when you guys were paying three hundred and fifty dollars a month to pay rent on my studio apartment on Twenty Fourth Street and Eighth Avenue, and the Renaissance people said you have to stop paying that's gonna kill him like every person i've talked to since then said that was really stupid you guys don't have any money a studio apartment in manhattan for 350 dollars is worth keeping blah 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 you had no opinion about that no i mean we were just listening listening to what they were saying all right just relax you're getting you're getting all uh i'm getting verklempt. you're getting I t- <laughs> what's the word maudlin i'm maudlin yeah why I'm are you feeling maudlin i don't want to hear this stuff what stuff this stuff about uh, renaissance what about it i think we need to move to the future come on let's go to the you present you brought up renaissance you said renaissance wouldn't even let me in there Remember? Yeah, I forgot how that came up. I oh my! I'm watching the incredible decline of my <laughs> well, father. I'm trying. It's my amazing. Best. This is real time. You know, everybody around my age in their late 40s, early 50s, probably if their parents aren't dead, their parents are probably in decline. And now you will witness. Uh, my father uh, is in physical de- decline, not usually mental or spiritual decline, although here it is showing a little bit. But he did something recently that was it's, it's morally bankrupt, ethically bankrupt, which was he took advantage of his grandson in his fantasy basketball. Uh, look. Dad, by the way, before we even talk about that, good. would you like to comment on your decline? It is noticeable. <laughs> it is noticeable. I do have to. I do have to remember why I walk into a room for something. I do. Uh, this hip business is really hurting badly, very, very much. Um, What's the upside? There isn't any upside. There's no upside. Of, of upside of the hip hurting me. Or no, of the, of the decline. Of the decline. Of the agedness. Oh, maybe feel, people feel sorry for me. Maybe I don't know. Is, do you enjoy that? <laughs> I, I like complaining. That's true. Uh, uh, All right, so you get that. Now, let's get to what you did with your grandson. Look, it was... My a, father calls me and he said... There's first a, of all, it's about fantasy basketball David is talking about. Okay, go ahead, David. My father calls me. He says, the league is very upset at me. Three people were upset and make, you making it four. No one else made a comment. Um, did you go to them or did they just see the deal? Oh, Seymour saw the deal and went wacko. Yes, he was not happy. So why don't you explain to the listeners oh, look, what we're right. talking so about? So I had I I had dinner with my my grandchildren and my daughter and son-in-law, and my what grand- did you eat? It was delicious baked ziti. Mm-hmm. Mm, not bad. Meat or just cheese? Uh, cheese. Okay. Right, anyway, so my grandson Alex is a big sports fan, and he really is not into basketball, but. But he loves he loves the idea of fantasy. So he's. Would you say that he is? Uh, he doesn't know too much about the NBA. I would say, and this is where I think my the criticism against me is incorrect. He does huge amounts of research, and he did research and saw that he needed three point shooting, and he he needed uh, he needed uh, not that he needed. 
this player on the New York Knicks, Jalen Brunson, but he really liked Jalen Brunson. Now, Dad, yes. let me ask you this. What was the trade? The trade was Jalen Brunson and Tyrus Jones for DeMar DeRozan and James Harden. Now, of all those players, tell me who the, the shooter with the highest three-point percentage is. Probably Harden. And who got Harden in the deal? <laughs> I, I did. And what did Alex want? He wanted three-point shooters. But I rest my case. No, don't. So you're telling me <laughs> your grandson says, I want three-point shooting. You know your team is garbage. Is it? How is your team doing? It's only eighth place. Your team is garbage. <laughs> your grandson says he needs three-point shooting. So you then, in a very, you know, un- Unlike you, I mean, this is where your back is against the wall. Your competitive—it's either your competitiveness or your family—and you choose yourself. All right, hold on. And don't you- be nation. He's not giving all the facts. The un—the part that he's missing is James Arden has not played in months and months. He has been holding out. He had a hamstring injury last year. He is older, much older than. He's Jaylen. a year older than last year. Last year he led the league in assists and was a better three-point shooter than only, everybody else. Only- only played, only played fifty or forty something games. Do you feel comfortable with what you did, uh, unequivocally? Uh, at the moment, right now, I feel okay. At the time that I was getting all the criticism, I felt bad that maybe I made a mistake. However, did part of you feel justified knowing that you? came out ahead in the deal. No, right? You are you are in deep denial all, all right, the listen, time. I'm going to make this announcement. Dopey Nation, listen, we have no idea how this trade is going to come out. The two guys I got could get injured. Jalen Brunson scored 45 points the, the, the day I traded him. And, uh, and it could work out any way possible. But I am going to say, at the end of the season, I am not going to be in eighth place. I'm going to be way up there contending with the leaders. Because you My, take advantage of your grandson. No, I didn't take advantage. Okay, he okay. wanted shush, shush, shush. I, Dope, Dopey Nation, anybody who knows anything about basketball, the deal was my father, Grandpa Allen, yeah. kindly— Beloved Grandpa Allen. Alex was very happy with the trade. I should. I wanted to give him Barrett. He didn't take. He wouldn't want Barrett. He wanted Brunson. Wow, that's smart. You wanted to really rip him off. No, so you hold in the Barrett and somebody else. I know, Dad. It's a rip. You you tried to rip me off last year too. You're a rip off artist, and you ripped off your grandson. And before you say another thing, yes, I just want to say, anybody who follows the NBA, my father got James Harden and Demar Derozan for Tyus Jones and Jalen Brunson. That's it. Now, Dad. On another uh, subject, who is currently in first place in the league? My beloved son, David, is in first place. Dominating (laughs) your corrupt, (laughs) fucked up league. And I'm going to leave it at that. Now, we had an interesting idea for a segment from a a very controversial fan of the Dopey Podcast. Her name is Gigi. She recently wrote something very nasty about last week's guest. She didn't like him. Oh, the comedian? Yeah, you liked him? Yeah, I thought he was good. She didn't like him. All right. She wants to have a segment called Go Ask Alan. Oh, no. Okay? And the first Go Ask Alan question is, ask your dad to explain in his words what he thinks a particular drug experience would be like. What would you imagine an LSD trip would be like, Dad? Close your eyes and go there. I would think... That number one, 
I mean, you want me to imagine what it would be like. And uh, the imagining that I have that it would be like would be some weird, weird thing. But the reality, the Dad, reality is... No, 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 is, no, no, this is going to be fun. Um, it says, close your eyes. I did. Now, Im imagine what an LSD trip would be like. You don't really use your imagination very often, so this is a good exercise. <laughs> I mean, I you imagine it for ripping off your grandson. I, know. I, I, I have a terrific imagination. As a matter of fact, most of the things that I imagine never happen. That's right. how terrific they were. So let's hear your imagination about okay. what an LSD trip would be like. It, it would be uh, out-of-worldly. It would be ridiculous. It would be, it would be filled with, with fantasies. How do you think you would feel if you took an okay. LSD Here's the important part, Dopey Nation. I wouldn't do it. That's not the important part. Is to and not only I like. wouldn't do it, but guess what? My biggest fear would be. My biggest fear would be that after I would do something like this, something bad would have happened to my brain that I couldn't recover from. I would have. Like I, your morals would be so low that you take advantage of No, my of morals your are very, very high. That was going to be a good trade for Alex because Brunson is going to have you a super hear something, year. You want to hear something messed up? No. Um, uh, I mean, yes. Last okay. night we, we have, we're having dinner. Okay. And this is a, uh, a secret, secret thing. And no, Lin, no one should tell Linda or her mother <laughs> yeah, right. or my oh, kids no, no, no. About, about this. Yeah, this is very private. Though. So, yeah. so we ha we're having Linda's mom over for dinner last night. And Linda goes and buys two rotisserie chickens from Stop and Shop. And, uh, and, and she makes, you know, stuffing and she makes uh, asparagus and green beans and whatever. Nice meal. And, but the chickens, uh, you know, they were going to sit out on the counter for too long for them to be served hot. And I had recently read about how, what to do with a rotisserie chicken like that and how to serve it properly if, if it sits on the counter. And what they suggest is you get a pan uh, and you put the rotisserie chicken in the pan and you put, I think they suggest putting water in the bottom of the pan, yeah. and then you put it in the oven for whatever amount of time. And then I, I've always thought, well, we always have all that chicken stock. So why don't I, t you know, they sell these boxes of oh, chicken yeah, stock yeah, yeah. at Costco. And, and, and I guess now, many years ago, I bought one of these boxes full of seven containers of chicken stock, thinking, how could anybody buy a giant box of chicken stock if they don't last forever? And uh, I don't know, I guess I sent Nora downstairs to get a box of chicken stock. We still have like four boxes left. I open it up. I cover the chickens with the chicken stock. I cover the bottom of the pan. I, um, I aluminum foil the tray and I put it in the oven. And then I'm like, I don't know. I get this feeling that maybe that chicken stock has been down there too long. I mean, they're in those, those thermal containers, totally well, sealed. It, not, it didn't have to be refrigerated. No. Right. No. Um, the expiration. Yeah. It was 2002. I think it was March of 2022. Oh, piece of cake, no problem. But then you, then I Googled it, and it said it should still be good for a year after that. Of course. But this is a year and a half. I didn't tell anybody. Oh, good. But anyway, was it bad? I think it was okay. But, my, <laughs> but as I'm eating it, I'm thinking, am I, am I poisoning myself if, if or the family? Would, if Linda would have seen that, you would have been... Uh, in bad shape. So now I need to I need to throw away all that chicken stock. You I think. Do you want it? <laughs> I, uh, did you? Well, you should. Did you smell it first? You didn't do anything. 
I smelled it afterwards, and I was, I don't know. I figured well, the heat. The when heat. did you eat this? Dinner? Last night. Uh, and how are you feeling today? <laughs> I feel I feel pretty good. <laughs> All right, don't worry about it. So it was exp- expiration dates and nonsense. Right, but it was uh, it was uh, it was basically I owe you an apology. For what? You owe me an apology. For I've been so judgmental with you about your lackadaisical uh, Expiration. expirations and how pathetic you are for it, and here I am, dousing my chicken, I, steaming the chicken with expired. Uh, stock, and I, I feel like I, I owe you an apology. Right. Well, I accept the apology. And uh, in, in reality, uh, I... Hold the mic so you're talking into it. it. Yes. The top of it, like okay. this. Oh, all right. Anyway, I really do... Christ's like, sake. How many times... You're like, like, this is, it's horrible. And my sound is not coming through. Now you sound good. Uh, in, in any case, I you like for milk, for sure. I mean, I smell the stuff first. If I open up something... Milk that, is different, though. Yeah, I mean, but there's other things that you can actually maybe taste it first and say, uh-uh. But you know what's interesting? You'd think organic milk is just a scam. You know what I mean? You'd think that it's oh, so you mean expensive. It, you, you really think it lasts longer, you think? It lasts longer, and I don't think... I mean, like we buy organic milk at Costco, and it, it's the expiration is months ahead, and really? it never is. Ba- I mean, we use it within the expiration, but it's never bad. Whereas the milk you buy, the cheapy milk, goes bad like the next day, and it's terrible, <laughs> it's it's disgusting. Especially if my son buys one that's expiring on October twenty third, and he hands it to me on the twenty fifth. <laughs> it was over with. But anyway, that's all right. Expiration dates seem, have to you be. You see how I'm holding the mic? Yeah. All right. No, like this, I, like this. So the, it, this, you see this? It needs to point at your mouth. There's a thing inside. It's called a unidirectional thing. It, you need to talk into it. Not like this, like this. All right, uni. Okay. Here, put these on. I, no, I don't want to put, I'm going to listen to you. It's like I, you look at hello. Me, talk into it. Oh, my fucking God. Dopey Nation, he's arguing about microphones for five years already. I mean... And you complain about the sound from time to time. That's true. Yeah, I was terrible with the sound sometimes. Uh, I understand. Now, Dad. Yes. Let's hear some... I am realizing now why you just started complaining about the show, because I asked you to record something, and I always want to hear your criticisms of the show. So, it seems like you haven't been a very... um, I only missed one episode. Yeah, but it doesn't seem like you're really paying attention when you listen, which what? is fine. Um, who can, I, don't, I can't. It's very hard. I to thought the British comedian was very, very funny. Was right on and very uh, honest and and a little bit emotional. I mean, you know, you got the you got the worst out. Of, I mean, you got the best out of him in terms of. I, I thought he was good too. This yeah. the, the woman who came up with the uh, "Go Ask Alan" wrote. This, I don't usually. Uh, did, it, did, you, did you get enough of my response to that question? Or no, not? you don't seem like you're really willing to do oh, it. Well, the, 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 just the, the point the, is that you're scared you'll never return to your greatness if you took it. The, the, the ramifications of doing but something that, that was, you know that could was something the, bad. That wasn't the question. That was my advice to the dopey nation. That, it, it wasn't a question, go ask Alan for advice. It was imagine you took LSD. What does it feel like? Okay, well, I imagine. So you're, you'd be scared is really the point. Yeah, I would be scared of the outcome. It would be scary. It's yeah. LSD is a scary, scary well, thing. Yeah. You need to be very, very positive going into it. All, All right, right. Wait, wait a minute. That British comedian was talking about medicinal uses of mushrooms. I mean, this is serious stuff in terms of uh, helping people. There are doctors and agencies out there that prescribe mushrooms for depression and stuff and there's a a a boatload of people out there who are taking micro doses which are tiny capsules 
Capsules. You say capsules or capsules? The first way you say it. How do you say it? Capsules. Capsules of psilocybin, which I like to pronounce psilocybin. Um, Which is. Do you know that they sell them at all these crazy weed stores in the neighborhood? Mm. And they say that if you take a couple, it's like a cup of coffee. You're, You're mental. You know, maybe it would benefit your. Decline. <laughs> maybe maybe we should have an experiment where you microdose a little psilocybin and see what happens. Yeah, well, maybe. Would you be interested in that? Not yet, no. That could be no. a, a late stage <laughs> yes. decline dopey it, it may special. Be, it may be happening sooner than later, yes. All right. Um, yeah, the, this, this person, Gigi, wrote, and I don't usually say negative comments about guests on the show, but what the hell? We're talking. Gigi said, and Gigi wanted to do the Go Ask Alan segment. She says, greetings. Please use Jeff Leach as the standard for Dopey's douche seller. Oh. One more drop of weenie juice and the place would have flooded. I needed more about him getting stomped in the street to offset his icky character. Peace. Holy cow, that's not nice. Rough. Yeah. Reminds me of the old days when people wrote that kind of stuff about me. yeah, <laughs> Not fun. Do, is there anything else you want to say? Forget about last week in general since Dopey. In, in, since DopeyCon IV, have you had any observations about the show? They've been very long. No. Well, look, you're giving them their money's worth or their non-money's worth in terms of uh, how much. Do you think it, I'm crazy to make the show this long? You Look, you, you like doing it. You you make it like it was, it was a kid who's telling me that the book, I, I give it, I have given a book for the class to read at, at school. And the book is called Sapien. So the kids come in and two of them say, there were too many words. <laughs> they didn't like the book. It was too many words in the book. Well, you make a show where you think it's long enough to be. I mean, you're, you're making the decision of how long to make the show. It's your decision. So that, that's, uh, you know, it's up to you in terms of what you, you put into it. But I understand what people are saying, but they can listen to it, you know, a little bit at a time, you know. Well, I mean, I, I do. I like to make it long. Now, do you want to tell... Your story about uh, the guy who cheated at FIT. No. Why not? No. Why, why not? Well, actually, there You're is. You're so excited there, to tell me that story. There is, there is a point. There is a point to be made. Just tell the story. Well, I, the, the point that I'm making is, is that, is that I, you know, I was talking about this horrible, horrible war with Hamas and Israel. And then, and also based upon something that was in the book *Sapiens*, so I asked the question to the class: Is truth important? And that was the question: Is truth important? And of course, my head says it's a no-brainer. Everybody should raise their hands and say, "Of course, truth is important." Nobody raises their hands. Nobody comments. I, it, was, it was like talking to the wall. And and this young person who took the midterm, leaves the room, and comes back 10 minutes later and tells me that he cheated on the midterm. And tell, tell the story of how he actually told you, though. What did he say? Well, it, it, he, he, it was very, he was very embarrassed. He was very sheepish. And, uh, and he said he needed to tell, me, to tell me what happened. And I listened to him, and I told him, how serious it is in many, you know, in many institutions, people could be expelled for things like that. Anyway, what it amounted to is, I think me bringing up the question of why truth is important maybe put something in his head about that he really was not truthful. So when he told you he cheated, what did you say? 
I, I told him that it was very, very honest of him to, to uh, admit to it. And I told him, again, what I tell everybody in the Dopey Nation, that before you do something, you should think about the ramifications of what you do. And that if, in fact, you would have thought you would have been expelled from school because you did this, maybe you shouldn't have done it in the first place. And then I, I got almost expelled from school a few times. Yeah, well, yeah, no joke. I never thought it could have happened to me. I just thought I'd get away with it. Well, the yeah, only I can relate that story to one time I was in treatment. Like I never, I never did anything wrong in school, and then didn't try to get away with it. Like I always tried to get away with it. But one time when I was in treatment, it was it was it's a story I've told a million times on the show where somebody threw in heroin into a treatment I was in in California and even, and I did some when I was in treatment and then I, I was so freaked out I went and confessed mm. and then they kicked me out. Um, yeah, confessing doesn't usually go that well. well I mean, I guess, it, I guess it, his conscience is, is cleared though. Right? Anyway, what it amounted to, he wound, he, he wound up getting a failing mark in the midterm. Though. Are you gonna give him a chance to do better? Well, he has the rest of the term. He has a final to take. He has work to hand in. He's not. He doesn't have. He's not going to fail. I, I have a feeling in the many, many, many years of teaching, you kind of you do your thing, you leave, and that's it. I think with this kid, you should approach him and be like, "Why don't you try to do this extra work to make up for your cheating, and and give him some some sort of return on confiding in you." That he's a scumbag. Well, I he looked. It, it, it turned out that that he he left. He left feeling positive. I left feeling positive. He, 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 he could make up uh, all sorts of work, et cetera. I agree. I agree. Uh, it didn't turn out negative at the end. It was a positive outcome. Do you think I should trim my beard? Why are you changing the subject? I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm done with this conversation. All right. Okay. Uh, yes, you should trim your beard. And yes, you should. Uh, you want me to tell you what else you should do? Yes. <laughs> no, you don't because you can yell at me. Well, oh, that's right. You should be able to control your anger. I can control my anger. Oh, good. So then when somebody is a responsible adult and they hear somebody talking about a conversation that maybe they don't want to listen to, that maybe they can respond in a much more sedate, sophisticated careful, sophisticated nature. way. I responded, well, it was we were, I said, listen, Dad. I said, I have a meeting at Katz's and I need to record something with you first. And then he said, we need to talk about financial planning. And then I got angry and then I quickly... Uh -huh undid the anger and i said dad this isn't the time to talk about okay. that why don't we come up with a, t a time to talk all about right that? did but, i do that or didn't i do that i know but again again for the dopey nation would it be a responsible thing that a, a an adult with two children family etc should be concerned uh, about their financial future do not, and the, I mean, and the care like, of their family but it's 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 ridiculous for you to make that claim okay i'm not making because it every I, that day, was a comment listen it's been i've been sober I listen. I, I love Every it. Every I, I love it. I love it. I've, I love it. I've taken more efforts to yes. to to ensure uh, some sort of fiduciary uh, <laughs> you, nice <word>. solvency <laughs> for the family. You can't can't deny that. I've been uh, I've been putting a lot of effort. In this I, stuff. I I I agree with you a hundred percent. Now, how do you sleep at night knowing what you did to your grandson? I, How do you feel like the moral upright center of when the show you see today, when you take advantage? Okay, what would you say if after today, 
Harden breaks his leg. Brunson scores 50 points. DeRozan goes 0 for 12. It. It. It's not going to so, happen. Though. Yeah, it will Do you happen. want to read a review or do you want to just be done? I can't see. You Why, can where's read the glass? I can't read the reviews. Where's your glass? It's in, in, the, in the kitchen table. There's a lot of reviews we never read. Oh, really? I Yeah, I haven't seen any recently. I mean, I haven't looked to see any recently. Oh, somebody, somebody comments about the ads. Uh-oh. I love Dopey, but I shy away from the advertisements. What does that even mean? Uh, shy away. Well, look. skip them. Yeah. No, they, you? Shh, you shouldn't say that. Just do what you want. Just give me, leave me alone. You know, what's wrong with you? There's, here, here, there's a lot of really new good reviews. You, I, you see, you stop looking at the reviews. I, well, because I've been in pain. Well, usually I've been, that makes I've you been, happy. I've been you, in, you read every fucking Dopey Nation Facebook post. Uh, I try to. But why not the reviews? Uh, which one? The top I mean, one? I don't care. Uh, oh, all right. This is five stars. Yep. The single best podcast out there. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Funny, relatable, sometimes absurd. Yeah. I would agree. Sometimes heartwarming, sometimes heartbreaking, and always human. This is the best podcast out there. If you want to understand the dopiness of addiction, the hope of recovery, or you just want to hear interesting stories and conversations hosted by a what? A master interviewer. Master interviewer. Who complains about microphones, who isn't afraid to be Did himself. Did say that I complain about microphones? No, I just added that well, in there. You are not a master <laughs> interviewee. Uh, who isn't afraid to be himself, then this is the podcast for you. I've been listening since the summer of 2018, and I can't get enough of Dopey. And who is this from? I don't know. Who's I don't it? know. TRC, what does that say? TRCHM. Do you want to hear another one? Uh, echoes of inspiration, I guess, Chris. Hello, I've just wrapped up listening to an episode in which, in which Chris shares his belief in an afterlife. Yeah. As I reflect on his contributions to the earlier episodes, it's incredible to see how he and Dave have provided a voice to those who needed to hear their experiences shared. I'm truly thankful that Chris's work in recovery has become his legacy in the afterlife and he continues to inspire. While he enjoyed signing off with Toodles, I'd rather say keep inspiring. And that's very sweet. That's like a New York Times-y kind of thing. Why that, that's got to be an old guy that wrote that. Uh, rather than sign it off says, Toodles. It says, Jesus, C123. Um, How do you know it's not Jesus? Well, you don't. I, I mean, I'm doing the, the Spanish pronunciation. But do you think Jesus... Is, is, was not Spanish. You're saying that Jesus is not the per, the proper pronunciation of Jesus. What but makes you I think would, that's I would, Jesus? No, I, I. You have no idea. Well, I guess from being in school so many years that I always hear the kids say. I, I think you're say, just uncomfortable saying the word Jesus. Maybe. What do you think? Uh, I'm I'm not uncomfortable. I'm just upset of of how 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 all the beliefs cause harm to people. But this is wonderful. Because that is true. I mean, Chris is like living forever kind of thing. Those glasses are just amazing. Well, you mean with the rhinestones? He's wearing his <laughs> rhinestone women's ladies' readers. It's you have two pairs of them, too. I got more than two. Why these? Oh, you ordered them from Amazon I by did. mistake? Of course not. I go to Jack's, Jack's Why store. do you buy the ladies' ones? I was thinking you look a little like Grandma Pearl, but I guess it's just the readers. Uh, listen, everybody, I buy them because they magnify the... the they have the, men's the, ones, too. They didn't have the, quote, correct, the what is your? Power. What's the power you need? Uh, are you kidding? I need. I need binoculars. What's the correct power? <laughs> I don't know. What's the highest highest number? I don't know. Two two twenty five. Two fifty. Ray Brown wears very masculine readers, and <laughs> I and I commented on them, 
and he gave me a pair. Really? And it turned, I'm starting to need them, uh-huh. which is very yeah. depressing. Yeah. Um, but his are too strong, but they're very masculine. So maybe I'll give them to you and you can look more masculine well look i don't care how how it looks i just need to be able to read something do you remember in the old days when people would call and think that you were mom oh because i refuse to answer the phone his voice was not it was as masculine as his readers no they say yes ma'am when i pick up the phone (laughs) (laughs) i don't know why you pick up the phone i i don't have 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 people tried to get you entrapped you into any kind of senior citizen scams of late oh of course, all the time. And you fall for it? No, I don't usually answer the phone. And when I, if I do, I hang up. Horrible. It's terrible. I mean, there's too many horrible, horrible people out there who try to take advantage of others. Why don't you say something positive before we go? Uh, something positive. Well, yes, I'm very, and, and, very, I'm very happy that. Uh, oh, you almost had 11 million downloads. You want to make a prediction? We're here. So 11 million. What is it? 10.8 now? 10.7? We're thereabouts. Uh, 10, all right. I'm going to predict May 17th. May 17th. You're way off. You mean it's going to be earlier? Yeah. It's November. What's the date? November 6th. It's November 6th. I'm going to say is we that- will hit 11 million by February. Because you're average. That's it. You're not giving me That's, any. You're not giving me any numbers. Okay. No, oh, my I math is I, so bad that it's, uh, what I was going to say is by the new year. But I'm going to say by February. Well, you might be right because I had I didn't check out the. Numbers. When did we hit uh, ten? During the summer, July. It was around Chris's uh, birthday or something. Yeah, very interesting. Anyway, Dad, thank you for another uh, really riveting addition to dopey yeah i hope my sound was okay out there I mean, because i do have a problem with you microphones. close your eyes. <laughs> <laughs> i don't even know and, what's going and on. with fantasy basketball listen i hope david finishes first and i hope i finish second no i hope alex finishes second uh, and i hope so i finish third that be honest and i hope the blanks finish in, in, reality, in reality you hope you <laughs> finish first and then you don't really care if me or Alex are second or third. No, that's not Just true. Just be honest. I I am honest. I look. If I finish you're first, so, I would. You're so. You're in. <laughs> you, you have so much uh, self deception. You don't even know what honesty is. All right. Let's put it this way. I would like. I would like the the Mannheim quote family to be one, two, three. All right. We'll leave it at that. Thank you, Dad. Uh, stay strong, Dopey Nation. Yes. And uh, Dad, you want to give a nice sign up? Yeah. Stay strong, Dopey Nathan. Everybody. Everybody. Say, stay strong, Dopey Nathan. Uh, whoever's Nathan out there. No, stay strong, Dopey Nation, and toodles for Chris. Yeah. Stay strong, Dopey Nathan, and fucking toodles for Chris. Chris, Dopey Nation. Good, so bad. One, two, So bad, so bad, bad as 